from the north and welcome to another forum today called Rise of the Bormann Reich with Dr. Joseph Farrell. Now he is a true renaissance man and an expert on many fields. He has his PhD from Oxford University and is a former adjunct professor, composer of classical music, plays the harpsichord and produces books like a German factory. So far, he has authored 28 and counting. Go to our website for his full bibliography, biography, and find links to all his online sites, including his active video blog, where he shares insights into contemporary affairs with his brilliant analytical abilities. One of his series of research is into the covert history of the Nazi cult. Today he joins us to shed light upon another step in the timeline of these breakaway Nazis. Welcome back, uh, Professor. Thank you. And you'll notice I'm calling you Professor because to... (laughs) To us, to our listeners, you are our professor. But really, I got so much good feedback from our last talk. So we have quite a pressure to top the last one. (laughs) And today we're going to continue with the timeline that we began on the last time. Yeah. And last time, one of the books we were having as our source was the Nazi International. Right. And I kind of regret that I didn't just follow the timeline you drew up there, because there is a timeline, people, at the back of his book, uh, which begins in the 20s and goes all the way up to your new book, The Third Way. Right. I don't know if you have, you have time to, to get all the way into that material, but we'll we'll just creep upwards from the end of the war. Now, before we begin, uh, I have a question to you mm-hmm. about the books we covered last time. Right. Reich of the Black Sun and mm-hmm. SS Brotherhood of the Bell and Nazi International. What would you say, Joseph, are the biggest difference between them? Because they have many similarities, but how would you describe their distinction from each other? Well, the biggest, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, the biggest difference between them, uh, I'd, I'd toss in their secrets of the unified field as well. Um, SS Brotherhood of the Bell is my attempt to kind of um, reverse engineer the story of the Bell device as far as Igor Vitkovsky in in Poland and then uh, Nick Cook in the United Kingdom tried to pursue the story. I added some insights and so on, and and, and basically uh, the only significant difference as far as the history of the post-war history of the project mm-hmm. is concerned is that I I tend to think that the Bell project, or at least parts of it, let's put it that way, made their way to Argentina, whereas um, Igor and Nick present a case that it went to the United States and disappeared after the war into American black projects. And, you know, again, if we're talking about 
part of a project going to Argentina, then it's possible that part of the project came to this country. And there's certainly some suggestions of that. Um, you had in NASA, you had the case of, of Dr. Kurt Davis, who was one of the Bell scientists that actually ended up as the senior flight administrator at, at Cape Canaveral during the Apollo missions. So, you know, he was in a very significant position. Mm. And the interesting thing, you know, just since we're on him, uh, the interesting thing about him is that he wasn't a rocket scientist at all. <laughs> you mm. know, his, mm. his specialty was plasma research and, and high voltage uh, direct current electrical measurement and, and discharge. So, you know, this is a very odd guy to have you know, running your running your Apollo rocket. Uh, indeed, uh, indeed. And you have you have pointed that out before. But what we haven't yeah. delved into before, which we will probably get into the future, is potential connections. How right. he and a couple of others of those paperclip guys may have been um, a very important uh, network point for the Argentinian right. Nazis, as you were indicating now. But right. uh, remember, here we're talking about your books, so yeah. so that's um, that's an important book as for Nikuk and Vikotsky's book because you're actually introducing something very fresh there, and probably yeah. very real. Yeah, go on. Well, the other the other books um, in Secrets of the Unified Field, I'm I'm more concentrated on on the Philadelphia experiment and some of the resemblances between the the Nazi Bell project and then the thinking that was going on in the United States Navy during the war. Um, the chief difference, I think, that the Bell project represents versus the the philadelphia experiment is i think the the germans were looking for the things that they found and i think the americans to a certain extent uh kind of stumbled on to some of the things that they found or allegedly found in that experiment um the nazi international is a different book in that i'm more focused in that book on how some of the high-ranking uh nazi hierarchy escaped Europe uh, in the final days of the war. And I am also focused on on the, the fusion, the so-called fusion project of, of Dr. Ronald Richter in, in uh, San Carlos de Bariloche in, in Rio Negro province of Argentina. Mm. And the way I present that case there is there are a number of, of data points in that particular project that connect it very directly uh, to the Bell Project. So that book is more of a, I, I guess you'd say, more of a historical uh, book in that I'm trying to point out in it that this post-war Nazi organization, if you want to call it, I, I prefer to call it an extraterritorial state because that's really what it was. Uh, it had its tentacles all over the world, uh, in, even as far away as Taiwan and Indonesia. So you right. know, it's it's uh, it's it's more of a uh, an exploration of the hypothesis that when you're talking about post-war Nazi survival, you have to understand that it's more than just Klaus Barbie and and Josef Mengele hiding out in the jungles of Brazil. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, it's much more than that. I'd call it the Bormann Reich. Yeah, it's the Bormann Reich. That's mm. that's a very good name for it. Um, there was a, an American investigative journalist by the name of Ladislas Farago that 
published Martin Bormann and the Fourth Reich um, back in the 70s, a, a controversial book because what he did was he accessed many of the files of, of the Argentine uh, Central de Intelligencia mm. to, yeah, the very interesting book if you haven't read it. Um, Basically documenting the fact that, you know, Bormann and, and several high-ranking Nazis escaped and that they had basically this this um, <laughs> this extraterritorial state set up, mm -hmm. which, you know, presents kind of an interesting conundrum um, because when you think of uh, the apprehension of people like Eichmann and, and Barbie and so on, uh, the way it looks to me, Al, is that what was going on was was this post-war Nazi organization was simply tossing over, you know, a few of the deadweight fish that <laughs> it didn't really need, you know, mm -hmm. uh, while the high-ranking guys, Bormann and, and Miller and people like this, uh, continued on and, and, and continued their shenanigans in, in South America and elsewhere in the world. Um, so Nazi International is an interesting book because um, I, I, I'm, I take some pains in there not only to show what I think is one scenario, certainly not the only way that you can look at things, but one scenario on how Bormann and some of these people, including maybe even Hitler himself, escaped Europe. Um, I point out the, some of the connections of, of this Nazi uh, post-war organization to post other post-war events in which the Nazis had a huge hand, which is almost totally unknown uh, in this country, the overthrow of King Farouk in Egypt and yeah. then Mossadegh in, in Iran. Mm. Um, I talk about that a lot more in, in the new book that just came out. But it's, it's, it's basically laying the groundwork for this um, – post-war extraterritorial Nazi state that I think uh, definitely existed, uh, in my opinion, probably still does in some form or fashion. Mm. And the other, Reich of the Black Sun? Well, Reich of the Black Sun is the first book in, in that little Nazi sub-series of my books. And that book is uh, principally about two different things. The first part of it dealing with kind of a very cursory prima facie case for for the Nazi atom bomb project, which mm -hmm. I think uh, I, I present a case in that book that I think it was actually successful, that they actually successfully tested an atom bomb before the end of the war. Of, uh, of the, war. the second half of that book, <clears throat> I lay out some other um, some other black projects inside the Third Reich that, that were very uh, avant-garde, uh, fuel air bombs, things of this sort. Uh, <laughs> bless you. Um, some strange, some strange uh, apparatus that was uh, present at the University of Heidelberg that they were quite literally doing electromagnetic disintegration experiments with, mm -hmm. you know, just all sorts of, of just wild and, and, and weird things. And the reason I put that book at the beginning of this kind of sub-series of, of books concentrating on Nazis is that I wanted to create the context in which to view the Bell Project uh, because they're – there are a number of people 
out there that are trying to claim that the Bell was nothing more than uh, an isotope enrichment centrifuge for their atom bomb project. And I, I don't think that – I think they're, they're, they're making a good case, but I don't think <coughs> – pardon me. Bless you, Bill. I, thank you. <laughs> I don't think that they are presenting um, a complete case in that they're not taking – into consideration all of Vitkovsky's uh, data set. And then the other problem that they're having is uh, I connect the Bell Project, of course, to what's going on in Argentina hmm. with, with Juan Padron's government after the war. And this is where they stop. And, of course, once you see the detailed connections between the Bell Project and, and what's going on in Argentina with, with Dr. Richter, uh, the the detailed connections between what's going on in Argentina and what was going on with the Bell are quite a few, as a matter of fact. Um, and of course, Richter's project was not an atom bomb project; it was a fusion. Ostensibly, it was a fusion research project, but in reality, what Richter was really up to was he was trying to figure out and and experimentally verify and, and come up with a technology of how plasmas under electromagnetic stress and precession and so on are able to gate energy from the zero-point energy. So, you know, this is a very advanced, at least conceptually advanced uh, project that has nothing to do with atom bombs. And when you see the detailed connection to the same company that was involved in Germany with, with the Bell Project, when you see some of the other connections, it's, it's very clear that if you read that back then into the Bell Project, you're not dealing with, with an atom bomb project. I, I, um, I think the only way that you could conceivably make the tie to the atom bomb project is obviously the Bell is a uh, mechanical centrifuge of sorts. So that would probably be the only way or the only connection that, you know, they took their centrifuge enrichment technology and, and created this device for, for other experiments and other purposes. So, yeah, I think those, I think that uh, group of people, they're making a good case, but uh, I don't think they're looking at enough of the data set is, is basically what it comes down to. Okay, could you say that uh, Reusch of the Black Sun is... That, that's the first one, right? Yes, that's yeah. the first one. Could you yeah. say that it's a superficial outline of all these other books we talked about and that those are going into different aspects of this book deeper? Yeah, um, yeah, that would be a fair way to look at it. It's kind of a it's kind of a prologue to mm -hmm. what's coming. It, it gives you it gives you an idea or kind of a very high overview of some of the very bizarre uh, black research projects that the Nazis actually had going on during the war. And mm -hmm. and you know when I say bizarre, I mean bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. Yeah, I was thinking actually we could cover a little of that. We we are going to move from the war, but uh, we did not cover in our former program the scalar weapons thing, mm -hmm. and neither did you make a case for why you think that the Nazis did get to complete an atom bomb and how that uh, hmm. may have related to the American Manhattan program. So maybe we could start there. Maybe you could make the case for those two things, scalars and atom bombs. 
Well, the scalar weapons in, in the Reich of the Black Sun book, I point out a number of projects. I already mentioned the one in Heidelberg. Um, at Heidelberg, they had at the university there an underground installation. I think it was either 60 feet or 60 meters. I don't remember exactly which underground in, in a kind of a bunker. And there was a chamber, uh, an empty chamber, at one end of which, on the entire wall, they had covered it with a parabolic quartz reflector. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. and they had a they had a control booth with glassed-in control booth, and at the other end of this chamber, they had a little pedestal that they would place objects on, in some cases uh, little animals, you know, lab rats and so on. Right. And they were apparently, not much is known about this project, but they were apparently pulsing um, through an extreme form of, of piezoelectric effect, probably. I, I can't think of anything else. Pulsing these objects with massive amounts of, of electricity. And basically disintegrating them. Uh, there, there's not much known about this project, but that looks to me to be kind of a uh, another application of some of these uh, scalar wave ideas that the Nazis were playing around with. And, and let me, let me um, pause for a minute to explain what scalar waves are. Mm -hmm. Uh, because many people, there, there's a certain segment of, of the, let's say, the quote-unquote orthodox scientific community yeah. that poo-poos the idea of what scalar waves are. Well, in point of fact, if you go back to the year 1903, the British physicist E.T. Whitaker published a paper in uh, Mathematische Annalen in Germany. And I forget the exact title of this paper. It's, I, I've got a copy of it somewhere. Um, it's, it's all about longitudinal or scalar waves, which he analyzes or decomposes into bidirectional zero-summing vectors of longitudinal waves. So in other words, you, you've got an infolded scalar potential that uh, exists at a certain point. And if you want to think about what that means mathematically. Mathematically, uh, when you deal with vectors, of course, you're dealing with the translation from point A to point B. But with a scalar potential, if you can imagine a, a set of vectors in the form of a hexagon, mm -hmm. all kind of returning to the same place, and then if you imagine a square of vectors returning to the same place. In other words, they're making a circle, if you will. So what you have in terms of mathematics there is you have a zero translation vector, all right? Mm. But obviously something is going on because you have each of these vectors summing to zero, but there is a magnitude, a pure magnitude at that particular point, and that magnitude is a pure stress in whatever medium you've got there. Mm. And this is what a scalar is. This is this is exactly what Whitaker is is talking about in his paper. So sorry, could we say that uh, sure. as a metaphor that instead of 
moving an object from me to you, which is the right. normal way of thinking of right. things. It's rather that I'm poking you with a long stick. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, okay. it's, it's, uh, these, these kinds of things are, if you will, a, a way of, um, creating a template of action in a certain area. So in other words, you, you're you're literally creating a kind of spooky action at a distance, if you want to use Einstein's phrase. Mm. So this is what Whitaker does in this 1903 papers. He takes this idea of zero-summed uh, translation vectors, which is a scalar, and then he decomposes that into their component waves. And basically, you know, if you look at if you look at the way Maxwell first formulated his equations of electromagnetism, this is what you see because he did not formulate them in modern linear algebra. What people learn as Maxwell's equations now are not Maxwell's equations. They're Oliver Heaviside's equations because if you look at Maxwell, he formulated the equations of electromagnetism in a, in a mathematical, geometrical language called quaternions, in which scalars are, are a huge part of, of the way that uh, he notated his equations originally. So there was a, if you will, there was a kind of an editing out of this idea of the scalar potential by Oliver Heaviside. Mm. Um, but anyway, yes, this is what I think the Nazis were up to with some of these bizarre experiments, including this one that they had at the University of Heidelberg. Because if you're if you're relying on a gigantic piezoelectric effect, what you're essentially creating is, is a kind of electroacoustic wave that perfectly fills the bill of, of what Whitaker was talking about. Is this uh, technology related to the science of Keeney, Tesla and Kozarev? Oh yes, I, I definitely think so. So we don't need to explain it with crashed UFOs then? No, no. No, Got it. Uh, this yeah, you're you're touching on one of my hot buttons. There. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you want people to know this, right? So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I get this all the time. Well, couldn't the Nazis have come up with all of this stuff by you know reverse engineering a crashed UFO? Well, you know, my my philosophical problem with this whole approach is that you know if ET keeps crashing things on Earth for us to reverse engineer. Pretty soon we're going to have to start crashing thing on ET's planet so that he can catch back up with us. You know, I mean, it's just absurd. But you know, uh, you, you don't have to go to ET for all these ideas because the papers are there in the scientific literature. The problem is they're just not very well known mm. because of the replacement of some of these ideas eventually with special relativity and then general relativity and then. Uh, quantum mechanics and the standard model but these other papers are there they were published in the scientific literature mm. during this period so you know these are not strange ideas they're just little known no ideas. and if i was et i would rather do the opposite i would try to hinder mankind to yeah exactly to stop them from <laughs> yeah. getting this stuff we don't want <laughs> no. these little monkeys out no. here you know no. with their hydrogen bombs and their scalar weapons you yeah. know so yeah, this yeah. this I think is is uh, I I try very hard in my books, Al, as you are probably aware, to to look at these claims and look at these ideas that you see that the Nazis were investigating and and trying to reverse engineer 
the process of reasoning that might have gone into some of them by looking at some of these little-known scientific papers and ideas that were floating around at the time. Mm. So, you know, it's it's. I, I don't think you need to go to ET. You just have to, you know, quit being lazy and, and get off your duff and, and <laughs> go, you know, go look for some of these papers yeah. and see if, see if um, some of these ideas might be translatable into projects that the Nazis would be interested in. And I think they would, obviously, for, for multitude of reasons, not the least of which being, you know, with, with the banishment of, of Einstein and, you know, so-called Jewish physics, well, you know, they're going to fall back on some of these other ideas that were floating around in the scientific literature as, you know, as late as 1903 with Whitaker. So mm. I think, you know, I think you can you can make the case. You just have to know where to look. Now, with the um, with the atom bomb, this is a very different thing because there are definitely distinctive and and documentary clues that have come out, uh, curiously enough, since the German uh, Wiedervereinigung, the, the, the reunification, um, some of these papers were held and classified by the United States. And it's very weird to me, Al, to, to note that almost as soon as the Berlin Wall came down and, and Chancellor Kohl, you know, just kind of swallowed East Germany, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, a, that's another little story. <laughs> and it went so quick. It went so quick. It reminds we, me of the Yugoslavia crisis. Yeah, exactly. You know, we blinked and they're all one big happy Reich mm. again, you know? Mm. So, um, the, the, uh, the thing that's, that's peculiar about the German atom bomb project that I never, I never could wrap my mind around, even as a kid was okay you have this uh you have this country that's basically invented <laughs> i mean let's just be honest here that's basically kind of invented quantum mechanics and nuclear physics mm. you know sure we've got uh the curies in france and and we've got a couple of other people in holland and so on and Bohr in, in denmark but when you look at the vast quantity of, of scientists involved in, in nuclear and quantum mechanical research, you know, this is all going on in Germany yeah. by far. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> during the war, they seem to have gone nuts, <laughs> forgotten everything, you know. And then magically, at the end of the war, they they seem to have come back to their senses and they're starting starting to talk sense. Well, you know, this is a kind of scientific dyslexia that I'm, I'm I I just never could buy. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you have here the, the if there was one country on the on the planet that invented nuclear physics, it was Germany. Mm -hmm. So you know, we've got we've got a big huge problem here, and and. The closer you look at it, the more disturbing it becomes, mm. because as early as 1942, at about the same time that, that the same calculations are being done in the United States, the, the Heereswaffenamt in Germany, the, the, the uh, Army Weapons Office, 
had done the calculations of, of the critical mass for an atom bomb and concluded that they needed a critical mass of, of U-235 of about 50 kilograms. You know, So in other words, they knew within a reasonable ballpark estimate of what the critical mass was that they would need for an atom bomb. Mm. You know, It was very similar to American estimates at the time. So in other words, we're not dealing here with, with scientifically stupid people, <laughs> okay? Mm. And the other problem with, you know, as I began to think about this, the other problem was the, the post-war American legend of the atom bomb. Well, the Germans couldn't pull it off because they simply didn't have the money and they didn't yeah, have the Yeah, I was going to ask, what yeah, about resources? Yeah. That's an argument, That's yeah, a good that, argument. You know, the the resources, you know, they didn't have the money and they didn't have the labor pool. Well, again, this is nonsense because they certainly did have the money. They had a lot of it. As a matter of fact. Yeah, that's true. And they did have labor too. Oh, of course. They had, yeah, they had, you know, they had millions of people in the concentration yeah. camps that, you know, they could use to, to build these devices and not have to worry, you know, mm. like, like the Americans did about uh, radioactivity and things of this sort. And salary. And salary and everything else. And then, you know, the real clue for me was when I read a a book by an American author by the name of Carter Heydrich. It's called Critical Mass, an excellent book. Uh, You can go online on Amazon and read the reviews for this thing, and and you'll quickly get the impression that people are really eager to trash this book. (laughs) Hmm. Because it makes a very, very good case that the, the enrichment... Uh, the the fuel cycle, the the enrichment cycle in Nazi Germany mm-hmm. was probably closed. In other words, they had successfully developed the whole you know the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And the most curious thing that he presented, and I, I got to tell you, Al, when I read this, I just kind of fell off my chair mm-hmm. because, of course, at Auschwitz you had the enormous Ig Farben Buna factory the synthetic rubber factory okay yeah and he presents the fact that at the nuremberg tribunals when herman schmitz and otto ambrose and all these people from ig farben are in the dock they're being asked about this buna plant now folks we have to remember here ig farben is you know besides being this enormous chemicals cartel it's also the most scientifically sophisticated chemicals cartel mm. in the world, <laughs> okay, mm. the bar none. And in the dock at Nuremberg, you have all these farming executives saying, well, yeah, we, we had this big, uh, this big Buna plant at Auschwitz that we were running with all this slave labor and 10,000 German contract technicians and so on and so forth. Mm. And, yeah, this thing was in operation from 1940 to 1944, And, yeah, this plant consumed more electricity than the entire city of Berlin. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Which, that's a key right there because, you know, you don't need that much electricity (laughs) to make synthetic rubber. But, Mm -hmm. you know, and and Carter Heydrich brings that point out. Well, the Nazis had rubber fetish and leather fetish. Oh, of course (laughs) they did. But not that much. You know, and here's the big problem. You know, these farming executives are telling telling the Allied prosecutors at Nuremberg that, yeah, this this thing cost us. 900 million Reichsmarks, okay? Mm, mm. In today's dollars, that's about $2 billion. Wow. So in other words, this plant is enormous, mm, okay? Mm. 
And, uh, you know, 25,000 slave laborers and 10,000 contract technicians. And this is a huge plant. And on top of all of this, they say that in spite of all this investment, in spite of all this treasure, in spite of all these these human uh, slave laborers and, and contract technicians, that plant was not successful. It did not produce one hmm. ounce of synthetic rubber. That's an expensive failure, huh? Yeah, that's an expensive failure from a company that had the patent <laughs> on wow. synthetic rubber. Mm. So, in other words, this isn't a Buna plant at all. Mm. What it is, in in all likelihood, was an Oak Ridge-sized uh, isotope enrichment facility using a variety of, of isotope enrichment processes that I get into in Rack of the Black Sun, including centrifuges, including um, spectro- spectrography, and... As I point out in, in the Philosopher's Stone, they may have even been using a primitive form of laser isotope enrichment, which, you know, if, if we're talking this, then this means they were not only enriching just gigantic amounts of isotope, but they were doing it with technologies that were decades in advance of anything that that the United States was contemplating. Mm. And they, because of this technology, you know, a chemical laser that you can tune to the exact frequency of the isotope that you want to, that you want to separate within a few angstroms. Well, if you're, if you're involved with this technology, this means you're separating extremely pure isotope. So, you know, the bottom line here, folks, is is that what you're looking at at Auschwitz is you're looking at an Oak Ridge-sized isotope enrichment facility that is deliberately placed near the camp to use um, to use uh, the human inmates at the concentration camp as shields, you know, just right. like Saddam Hussein in yeah. in, uh, in in Iraq. So that's the first thing. The other thing that you have to look at with the German atom bomb project is a, um, how to put it, a number of anomalies, let's put it this way, that occur in 1944 that, in October of 1944, that are just extraordinarily, um, extraordinarily suspicious let's put it that way Mm -hmm. the first being that in october of 1944 the british press picked up a story and i point this out in in reich of the black sun that had been leaked to them from sweden Hmm. by a couple of german diplomats that had traveled from berlin to to stockholm and when they arrived in, in Sweden, they reported to, to their Swedish hosts that the telephone system in Berlin had gone completely dead for 60 hours. Hmm. Now, if you know anything about the telephone system in Berlin at the time, there were trunk lines around the city underground. <laughs> okay. Underground. So that's underground, yeah. suspicious. That's so it's crazy. extremely suspicious because mm. at the same time that this happens, 
I present a bunch of uh, eyewitnesses that tell their stories after the war that claim that they were at an atom bomb test on the island of Rügen in, in the Baltic Sea mm. at the same time that the telephone system in Berlin goes dead. Well, at uh, the time, we don't know anything about electromagnetic pulse. Mm. And it's possible that, you know, the Germans, if they're going to test something like this, are probably going to do it like we did. They're going to do it with an airburst and so on and so forth. But mm. uh, if, they haven't, if they haven't hardened their electronics, they could be very easily susceptible to something like this. So the British press runs this story about Berlin's telephone system being completely dead for, for 60 hours. And on top of this, the real killer here, the real, uh, I think the real clincher that we have to look at is two different things. In 1943, the Oberkommando der Luftwaffe put a, published a top secret study with a map. And I reproduced this map in Reich of the Black Sun. Uh, the map is a map of lower Manhattan Island. <laughs> In New York City, mm -hmm. and if you look at if you look at the map, what it shows you is the heat and blast damage radiuses of an atomic bomb airburst at about one thousand feet of a yield of approximately fifteen to seventeen kilotons. <laughs> okay, so in other words, this is a Luftwaffe study of where to drop the bomb to cause the most damage, you know, over Lower Manhattan. Mm. Wow. It's you know it's a creepy map if you look at this thing, especially with the idea that you know this is 1943. Why are they? Oh, that early. Oh yes, that early. Why are they making this study? Yeah. Well, if they detonated an atomic bomb in October of 1944 on or near the island of Regan, it's because they're getting very very close. And the final clincher here is in 1992, the American government, the, the National Archives in this country, declassified a document that's called the Zinser Affidavit that was given to American interrogators by a captured German pilot by the name of Hans Zinser, mm. who tells a story that is, when you read it, is chilling because he tells a story about flying his uh, Heinkel 111 bomber from Mecklenburg, uh, the province of Mecklenburg, up around Hamburg and Bre Bremen and so on. North Germany. Mm. Yeah, North Germany. I'm, 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 I'm having to say that because most Americans won't know, <laughs> won't know where Mecklen Mecklenburg yeah, yeah, is. But yeah. Um, yeah. He's flying his Heinkel from, from Mecklenburg out over the Baltic Sea towards Regan, all right? Mm. And he witnesses a huge explosion, and then he goes on to describe it in detail. Now, listen carefully. He, first of all, describes what he calls the blast or pressure wave extending out to a radius of about a kilometer, all right? Mm. A, little, a little more than a kilometer. Mm. And then he also describes the malfunctioning of his radio and his engines on his aircraft. So, in other words, there's electromagnetic pulse. And he also describes what he uses these words very explicitly, a mushroom cloud. Mm. And here's the key point. In the cloud, he describes bright colors burning. So, in other words, this is not 
a conventional mushroom cloud from a conventional explosive. Why? Because you have the continued combustion of the nuclear materials in this cloud. So look what we have. We have a huge blast radius. We have electrical malfunction of the equipment on his airplane. We have the accurate description of a mushroom cloud, and we have a description of the continued combustion of the nuclear material as it ascends in the cloud. Mm. And all of this from a pilot giving this affidavit in uh, right after the end of the war, before these details are known mm. publicly and popularly. And he's claiming to have seen this in October of 1944 fully eight months before the Manhattan Project. But what tested. does all this add up to? Because uh, most people aren't scientists. So, well, so these clues you're giving us. You well, what they add up to, yeah. what they add up to very, mm. you know, very bluntly is that it appears that the Nazis tested a successful atomic bomb sometime around October of 1944. But you said it wasn't a regular uh, signature of a regular nuclear bomb. No, no, all of these things are regular signatures of a nuclear bomb. The point here is that Zinsser is describing things that are not popularly known at uh, that. Yeah, that's right. At that point, it wouldn't be. Right, yeah, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Huh. So in other words, you know, you add this, I, I uh, buttress that with testimony of an Italian officer that was uh, sent by Mussolini's government uh, by the name of uh, Luigi Romersa, to the island of Regan. He actually talks about being on the island of Regan, getting in a bunker, having to put on special eyeglasses to view the test, and so on and so forth. So, in other words, we have all the details um, necessary here, plus a considerable degree of, of corroborative, contextual, and circumstantial evidence to suggest that they did indeed test an atomic bomb uh, sometime in, in October of 1944. And, and of course, you know, this is earth-shaking because this is fully eight months before we explode our plutonium bomb in, in New Mexico. Exactly. But then you must also explain two things. Mm -hmm. it, sure. How, if any, influence this might have had on the Manhattan Project. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and also, why didn't they use it if they had it already in 1943? I mean, right. if Hitler had known about a successful atomic bomb, bomb mm -hmm. he wouldn't hesitate a minute. Well, let's take the let's take the uh, why didn't they use it? Mm. Uh, in in Reich of the Black Sun, I point out two things. There are strange stories from the Eastern Front during the war of the Germans using weapons of mass destruction on the Eastern Front including fuel air bombs and reports of using some sort of an atomic device, perhaps uh, let's call it a semi-fission bomb. In other words, it's not a, it's not simply a dirty bomb spreading radioactive material over an area, but it's not a full up uh, efficient fission reaction. All right. So mm. it's kind of between the two. Uh, think of it as a kind of a, a big fizzle. <laughs> okay. okay. Yep. Um, there are reports that the Germans were using things of this nature during the Battle of Kursk, of all things, in, in 1943. Now, this report, incidentally, is coming from the Japanese military attaché in Stockholm hmm. in a cable to Tokyo, which is intercepted by American signals intelligence 
and and uh, decoded. And this is a document, incidentally, that's kept classified <laughs> until 1992. Mm. So in other words, the American government's covering up something, and, and it looks an awful lot like what it's covering up is a successful German nuclear program during the war. Mm. Now, so in other words, if the Germans are are, are in possession of any of these types of weapons, they're much more likely to use them on the Russians, you know, the subhuman Slavic Russians, than they're going to use them on, you know, their Aryan brothers in, in the United States and Great Britain. Yeah, and they were in a very heavy part of the Eastern right. Front War at that point, too. Right. Mm. Yeah, they, they were. And, you know, the other thing that we need to look at and consider here, Al, is, is the fact that the Wehrmacht... Um, inflicted just enormous casualties on on the russians in world war ii you know 25 million dead and and that's a conservative estimate you know the the uh i think it was the yeltsin government toward the end actually released their real casualty figures and and they were much higher than even that mm. so in other words this means that the wehrmacht you know the the red army was not tactically or or technically incompetent by any by any stretch of the imagination so in other words this means that the wehrmacht is is inflicting casualties on the russians at a rate that conventional warfare simply cannot explain mm. this is the bottom line here and i think if you if you ran this by any uh military college or or what have you they would they would probably tell you that you know given given the wehrmacht's tactical competence given some of their weaponry even that is not going to account for this this horrible 10 to 1 kill ratio that you see going on on the eastern front mm. so something non-conventional had to be happening there on the Eastern Front to to account for this this military lopsidedness that that persisted right up to the end of, of the war. Something has to, to account for this. And one of the most interesting things is that if you look at the the Russian response to this, especially in 1941, when the Germans are using kind of early primitive versions of fuel air bombs <laughs> of all things yeah. in, in some of their rocket artillery batteries, the, the naval Werfer batteries, um, the Russians were just so uh, pressed, hard pressed, you know, to, to come up with that kind of firepower that they signaled the Germans through Stockholm that if these attacks persisted, they would start using poison gas. Oh. You know, so yeah, but they did. They used everything they had. They even burnt their own country to. Oh yeah, yeah, to to, to stop you know mm. to stop this onslaught. And mm. and you know if they're using these types of weapons on the Eastern Front, then yeah, you can understand that that you know the Russians were in a very desperate situation. So that's a little bit of contextual evidence. The other the other part of the evidence is that if you look at a functioning atom bomb at that time. It's a very, very heavy piece of equipment. And the problem for the Germans at the end of the war is they really don't have a delivery, delivery. system mm. to, to deliver it to a target of strategic value on the Western allies that is going to, to make the Western allies sit up and take notice and, and, uh, rethink things a bit. Um, you know, dropping a bomb on London isn't going to 
going to do you very much good because that's only going to make the British even madder at you. Mm. So you have these Luftwaffe studies of, of, you know, trying to take out New York. And it's very interesting at the end of the war at the um, base there in Bodo in your country, the Germans had a very large base there. And they were apparently preparing some of their uh, their few long-range bombers, Messerschmitt 264s and, and so on and so forth, to deliver nuclear weapons to the United States. So in other words, you know, if they're going to use it on anybody in the West, they're not going to bother with the British because, you know, they're kind of second fiddle by that point in the war. Yeah. So, you know, they're going to they're going to pick a strategic target in this country. And obviously they were doing studies of New York City to, to do it. So but you know what we learn in school here as a part of war history, because we were heavily involved uh, in the war. So we, oh, we yes. have a little education on it. But they say that the only reason the Germans didn't get the atom bomb is not not resources, it's not money. It's because our guys, our resistance uh, guerrillas, took out the Norsk hydro plant, the heavy, heavy water, the heavy water plant there. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's you know that's a, another bit of, of allied mythology, I'm afraid, because after the I guessed uh, so much. Yeah. Yeah. After the attack there at the, at the Norsk uh, hydro plant, um, I forget where that was located, but after that attack. What happened was the Germans simply built heavy water facilities inside of inside of Germany, and oh, incidentally, wow. they located them in these these big underground facilities. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you know, they had they had the moderator, and and the other thing, the other part of the 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 legend that I don't get into in that book very much, but I do hint at it. Mm is we are told in this country, uh, as opposed to what you're told in, in Norway, in this country we're told that one of the reasons for the failure of, of the German atom bomb program was that they were never able to build a, successfully build a graphite moderated reactor in order to, you know, bombard the uranium and create plutonium for a bomb, mm. okay? Well, let's do a little history here. Where did the plans for the American graphite reactor that was built by Enrico Fermi Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the University of Chicago come from? They came from Italy. Mm -hmm. And the patent on that reactor was held by the University of Milan. So I think there's an Italian part of this story that no one has uncovered. I think you may very well have had an, a functioning Italian atomic pile, because after all, why would why would Hitler allow an Italian officer to witness an atom bomb test of a German nuclear weapon hmm. if Italy had not played some role exactly. in the development? Yeah, yeah, because they didn't have that much respect for the Italians anyway. They right, were, right. You know, and you know, the the Italians had this this patented atomic pile, mm. and you know, they were probably you know uh, given Olivetti and, and some of these companies up in in the Po Valley. You you had companies that were perfectly capable of making the graphite uh, reactor that the Germans were unsuccessful in making. So Yeah, but uh, including Italians there shows that they were involved somehow. Oh, yes, absolutely. They had to be quid pro quo. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But let's move on because we have a lot of things to cover and not so much time. Sure. So, But uh, it still doesn't explain why they just don't nuke their way out of the war. Well, I think at a certain point, 
let's let's put it this way. Let's back up to the bomb plot in, in July of uh, July twentieth, nineteen forty four. Mm. I think the the fact that you have a a possible and in my opinion probable successful nuclear test by the Germans in in October of 1944. I think this is the hidden logic behind the bomb plot because the Allies had made it clear that nothing other than the unconventional the the unconditional surrender of Germany was was going to play. Mm. If the plotters knew of the approaching success of a nuclear bomb project, this would have given them tremendous leverage for the Western allies. Mm. So I think, you know, I think we have to factor that into consideration. And then, you know, by the time... Hang on, hang on. So your logic here is that if they managed to take out Hitler, they could not just surrender, but they could actually save some of Germany because they had... Oh, yes, absolutely. I see, yeah. I see. Because they had the bomb. Mm. This this was the blackmail card, I think, that they were, they were gambling on. Mm. Um, you know, and that's, again, this is speculation on my part. Yeah, I want to make okay. that very, very clear. Mm. But it does rationalize to a certain extent why you see the people in the bomb plot, involved in the bomb plot, trying to overturn the, the Hitler regime and negotiate a separate peace with the Allies. They weren't interested at all in negotiating a peace with the Russians. This is the part of the, mm. the part of the story that's not remembered too well. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that releases, you know, 80 plus divisions on, on the Western front and, you know, back we go. <laughs> so, right. Um, the, you know, this, this is the old, this is the old wrangle, but, the other problem I think the Germans had, quite frankly, Al, by, by October of 1944, is they simply didn't have the delivery systems mm-hmm. ready to deliver them to strategic, strategically valuable targets. Uh, they were certainly working at breakneck speed on, on their rockets, you know, the so-called America rocket and, and mm-hmm. some of their ultra-long-range heavy bombers and so on and so forth to get ready for that. And the war ended, you know, as I point out in Reich of the Black Sun, there were American newspaper articles that appeared shortly after the end of the European war that pointed out had the war lasted another six months. Oh, we would have been finished. Yeah, yeah. The, the Allies would have been very, very hard pressed mm. to, to finish the war. So, you know, you've got all of these things going on at the end of World War II that, you know, it was it was really right down to the wire, quite frankly, in, in my opinion. A suggestion here. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, come with your own input and correct me if you, if you think it's wrong. But mm-hmm. uh, what I see here is that maybe they held the success back from Hitler. Yes. And that Bormann's motivation may have been because we know, and I hope we can get into that soon, uh, that they started preparations for their ratlands, for their escape from yes, the sinking yes. ship already in '43. So right. maybe the Bormann was thinking, okay, we we have this stuff, but I won't tell the maniac above me because he will. <laughs> I mean, if if he uses it and we lose, we're even more screwed yeah. than we are now. Yeah. yeah, I I think there's a lot to that, Al. I think I think you're onto something there. Um, so let's use it instead, right? Let's yeah, use it as leverage. Let's use it as leverage. Let's use it as a bargaining chip. Um, let's let's not 
let's not bomb out Europe, you know, mm. <laughs> with nuclear weapons, yeah. because the Germans knew that we were working on one, too. I mean, this right. is also very, very clear. Mm. So, you know, this was really literally a race against time. So you're suggesting the scenario, really, that I suggest in, in um, the Nazi International, mm. because if you look at the American atomic bomb project, it's a bit different than the ones the Nazis were running. So I'm going to kind of jump back and forth between Reich of the Black Sun and, and Nazi International here for a Yeah, minute. because I want us to get to the point where they actually escape and how they did it and why. Right. Well, the, the, the bomb is a part of the escape story. Exactly. Because in 1944, in the United States, the chief metallurgist for the Manhattan Project, for our atomic bomb project, a fellow by the name of Eric Jetta, mm -hmm. in December of 1944, on the very day that the Battle of the Bulge begins, <laughs> you know, mm. sends a memorandum stating that the stocks of fissionable uranium that the United States has will not reach critical mass stockpile until sometime in November of 1945. Mm. Now stop right there because the the little boy bomb that the United States dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th of 1945 was a uranium bomb. So where did the extra uranium come from? Mm. You see? Mm. Now this leads us to the Germans because as I point out in in the Nazi International what I think happened, and I'm, I'm skipping enormous amounts of detail here, folks, and I hope you appreciate this. This, this, this scenario takes a whole chapter for me to lay out in, in the Nazi International. Mm. But what I think happened was that Bormann negotiated secretly with the United States through his intel military intelligence that was in contact with Alan Dulles in, in Switzerland to turn over to the United States a stockpile of U-235 yellow cake. In other words, this is the final form of U-235 before it's metallicized for fuel in a bomb. Mm. This U-235 was making its way by U-boat accompanied by two Japanese military officers that was going to be transferred to Japan. Okay, mm. I think Bormann negotiated the surrender of that uranium to the United States. What he didn't tell <laughs> the United States was that he planned to put himself on the same submarine mm. so that the United States, when it told the British, and, and it did, incidentally, not don't bomb this submarine coming mm. through the Kattegat, mm. right? Of course not. It's a, it's a treasure chest. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, and the British, you know, well, the Americans are up to something. You know, for, for the American listeners, the, the Kattegat is that narrow strip of water between between Denmark and, and Sweden. Mm. So, you know, Bormann is, is doing this. The Americans are telling the British, don't, don't bomb this particular U-boat. And oddly enough, I point out that the RAF, the British RAF, actually spots this very U-boat making its way on the surface through the Kattegat at night, illumines it with flares, and doesn't attack. Mm. 
Mm. Now, at that time of the war, you know, the British were sinking anything that moved <laughs> in the Karaga. They were having a field day. Yeah, yeah. they were having they were, a field They could day. take it easily out. Yeah, they were, I, I, you know, this this is a clear this is a clear indicator that the fix is in. All right. Mm. So what I think Borman did was he put that uranium on that U-boat, but he didn't tell the Americans that he was putting himself on. On that U-boat. And probably also... And and probably Hitler and probably Heinrich Miller and a few other people that, you know, he was, he put all these people on that U-boat and, you know, with American protection and British connivance... He he snuck his way on that U-boat down to national Spain. Oh, oh h- hang on. Yeah. So it went from northern Germany to Spain. Yeah, it, it came down from Christiansand to Norway at the big U-boat base there. Mm. And, and, and Bergen, right? My and Bergen, right. Yeah. It, set, mm. it set sail initially from Christiansand up to Bergen. And then the, the logs of this U-boat, it's, it's U-234, were doctored. It returned to Hamburg to pick up passengers then it made its way over the, the northern Atlantic, where oddly there are 12 days missing mm. from the from the U-boat's logs. Probably enough time to get the U-boat down to to the northern coast of Spain in, in the Bay of Biscay and, and drop off whatever passengers are there. You know, this is the typical Borman thing to do. You know, this. Okay, okay. So, so if they uh, exited in Spain, mm-hmm. uh, they sent the U-boat over to the Allies, and then right. they got from Spain. How? Well, from Spain, I think probably what they did was they flew from Spain over the hump of Africa down into Argentina using mm. some of those uh, long-range Junkers um, aircraft that that Hans Kammler had available. I mean, this is right. such a complex, you know... Yeah, because other other researchers suggest that uh, right. they, right. they got to Argentina by U-boat because right. of all the anomalies uh, regarding German U-boats down in Argentina right. after the war. But yeah. this is an alternative scenario. Yeah, well, you know, you had you had the flights of these these long range uh, Junkers two nineties and three nineties making their way out of Europe as well, with a bell in maybe with the bell, I think you know, <laughs> yeah. Kammler and, and all of this stuff, mm. uh, Messerschmitt two six fours and, and Focke-Wulf two hundreds. You know, these were all long range four engine aircraft. Uh, Junkers three ninety was a six engine aircraft. Mm. But, uh, you know, they certainly had the aircraft to, to make these heavy lift, long, long flights. Now, what happened to the U-boat is interesting because the, the U-234 makes its way across the northern Atlantic. It dodges Canadian and British naval forces mm. and gets in contact with the United States Navy. Mm. The United States jams the radio signals of our Canadian allies so that we can find this U-boat first. Mm. And when the U-boat captain announces his intention to his crew with the two Japanese officers on board that he's going to surrender the U-boat and its contents to the Americans, well, the Japanese commit harakiri. The <laughs> the U-boat the U-boat surrenders to the United States, and here's where it gets very interesting. Okay, as if it weren't interesting enough so far. Mm-hmm. When the U-boat surrenders to the United States, it's told to make for Portsmouth, Maine. Once it reaches Portsmouth, Maine, the entire crew, of course, is taken prisoner and the contents of the U-boat are inventoried. Mm. 
And the contents include not only 80 gold-lined cylinders full of uranium-235 yellow cake, <laughs> okay, but they also include, and this is so vitally important, they also include 25 infrared fuses, plus their inventor, a fellow by the name of Dr. Heinz Schlicke, mm -hmm. all right, mm -hmm. he is taken to the Pentagon, <laughs> Okay, where he where he debriefs American military brass under the chairmanship of a quote Mr. Alvarez, who I think is Dr. Luis Alvarez, one of the Manhattan uh, Project atomic uh, bomb scientists, mm -hmm. who incidentally, guess what, goes on to win the Nobel Prize for solving the fusion. Or pardon me, the, the, the implosion fuse system for a plutonium bomb. Mm. Now, interesting the, timing, huh? Oh, yeah, interesting. Mm. Ain't that interesting? Because mm. the American uh, atomic bomb scientists had run into the nasty mathematical fact that in order to make plutonium go critical and create an atomic explosion, you had to compress that core in under symmetrically in under three thousandth of a second okay and we did not have the fuse technology to do it but infrared proximity fuses are a handy thing to have around if you want to compress a plutonium core for your bomb and guess what we laid our hands on with that u-boat along with the fuses inventor <laughs> Okay. So in other words, it's looking to me like what Bormann did is he surrendered to the United States all of the needed components to finish its uranium bomb way ahead, months ahead of the November date that Eric Jett uh, stated in his memo December 1944. Mm. And in addition, he surrendered... 25 functioning infrared proximity fuses, which, you know, are going to fire at the speed of light mm -hmm. and therefore solve your compression problem. And in addition, the guy that invented these fuses is briefing American Pentagon brass under the chairmanship of Luis Alvarez, who wins the Nobel Prize for solving the plutonium compression problem. So in other words, yeah, it's looking to me like we have a really clear case here that the the Nazi atom bomb project was not the the failure that we've been told in you know in our standard histories. If anything, it's the reverse. Uh, this uh, can be corroborated by another fact, because, uh, as mm -hmm. you pointed out, uh, Bormann was an uh, economy genius. He, his, oh, yeah. his, he was a calculating <laughs> guy, right? This, is about, this oh, yes. is about the dark side of mathematics. So we infer from what you just said, and this can corroborate uh, also your point, and that is we infer that, okay, he needs to escape, and we'll cover right. this with other people, how they prepared from 43 with money and all that. You don't have to bother with that. You have so much more interesting stuff to say. So you'll hear about this later, people. But, okay, he does this, he prepares, and then he gives up the family silver, so to speak, in right. order to get away with the family gold, yes, which is then the bell, because he would never give up right. their right. their the trump card, right? Well, so, let's look at it. Let's yep. look at it this way. Mm -hmm. um, if if I may interrupt, sure. Um, let's look at it this way. If you're if you're Martin Bormann and you you are intent upon 
constructing a post-war extraterritorial Nazi state, so to speak, mm. you're going to you're going to want to have some military project to give you power. Mm. Now, an atom bomb project you can't build because it's going to require enormous yeah. facilities that are going to be very, very detectable, even with the technology available back then, by the Western allies. So you're going to want a technology that doesn't require this huge infrastructure to work on, and that will also be a technology that has the potential, if weaponized, to give you something that would make an atomic bomb look like a pop gun, mm-hmm. all right? <laughs> so yeah, you keep you keep this bell thing back t- for yourself because number one, it's a project that doesn't require this big huge infrastructure in order to complete. Number two, that means you can keep it relatively secret and safe. Mm. And you know when Juan Perón spills the beans, well then you can have your chief scientist look like a fool as you close the project down and move it elsewhere. Mm. So you know, that's what's going on. Mm. Yeah, and it's so it's such an economical way to think too. Oh we, yeah. We deduct something here and we gain something there. We make right. a bargain. We calculate. This is Bormann. It's good. And Bormann this is Bormann. all over yes. it. Yeah. Yes, it's Bormann. All you know. Uh, people ask me, you know, what's the difference between Martin Bormann and, and Joseph Goebbels and Hermann Goering and you know all these yeah. people? Well, well, Bormann. You know, if you if you look at this guy, he's the professional Nazi. <laughs> He's he's the bureaucratic Nazi. You know, you've got the revolutionaries with Hitler and, and Goebbels and Himmler and all these people. And then you've got the real pro, you know, who's who's thinking for the future, you know, several generations down the line. Mm. So, you know, this guy is a piece of work. <laughs> just, and he probably just, wasn't that into the the symbolic the, the the things that doesn't count at the end of the day he right. he was probably more after real power real oh, yeah. influence even if it meant being behind in the shadows which he actually preferred anyway so oh, yeah. uh, what else has Bormann's print all over it is the post-war Nazi Reich where they are content with being in the shadow instead of prancing like right proud ponies in the middle of the street with their riding uh, pants and all that stuff that's that's right. the that's the show which was right. gone so yeah right. and we'll get to that very soon i think we'll we'll take a quick break and when we come back we'll go deeper into what happened after they left for all right germany all of our files are free and will remain free If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two. We are having uh, Joseph Farrell with us, and we've been delving a little into the more nerdy aspects i guess around <laughs> weapons and stuff but now we're going to come into the juice because we've established that this crazy evil genius uh, james bond uh, type of foe martin borman has escaped and we're not taking on that but before we do joseph mm-hmm. i just want to ask you a personal question sure you mentioned that already as a kid <laughs> you were pondering up on some of these nazi stuff 
How on earth did you get into to where did this interest come from? How early did it? Uh, well, it it began really when I was a very young boy. Um, I grew up in in South Dakota, which in is a state in the United States where there is a heavy presence of of Germans, of uh, uh, of Norwegians, of, of Dutch. Uh, my organ teacher, when I was a boy, didn't speak a word of English until he was five <laughs> years old. Right. So in other words, I grew up, you know, I grew up around Germans. My my godmother was German. Uh, so you know. But your own roots are Italian, or, or... no? My my roots are, uh, believe it or not, my grandmother Farrell, my paternal grandmother, was Alsatian French. Yeah, right. And her mother was Alsatian German. Ah. So I, you know, I'm I'm part French and I'm part German, you know, and that part of the region that they constantly fight over. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> right. Uh, you know, I'm I'm part Irish. Uh, I'm actually even part Basque, believe it or not. Wow. So yeah, so I'm I'm kind of you know I was I was raised around Germans. Um, so you know I was naturally curious uh, as a boy about the war, and of course I I love history, so I read yeah. about World War II all the time. And I just couldn't figure out, you know, I kept bumping into these anomalies of, about the Second World War over and over again, you know, things that just made no sense. And one of them was this problem, you know, I've always been interested in physics. And one of them was this just strange, glaring fact that, you know, you have this enormous German investment, so to speak, in, in the creation of, of nuclear physics, of quantum mechanics, and so on. Mm. And yet you have this strange scientific dyslexia that they're unable to produce an atom bomb during the war when they had all the resources. They had the Czech uranium mines and so on and so forth. And none of this made sense to me. Mm. So, you know, I was always kind of on the lookout for the odd little fact that or bit of information that might confirm my suspicion that we were being lied to about about the history of, of the atom bomb right. and of course after the after the german uh leader the the the, the, the um, reunification uh you had this massive declassification <laughs> of documents yeah. in the united states that i i truly genuinely think was kicked loose by by the reunification because at this point what it meant was all of those installations that were in the former eastern zone suddenly became accessible to the public again. Yeah. So there was really no point in trying to keep these documents secret anymore because the Germans were going to go in there and, and dig around and find out what was going on, right. which of course happened. You know, you had this explosion in, in Germany of, of researchers that began looking into these installations and going through the – uh, documents there in, in the Berlin documents. Yeah, and Witkowski too. And uh, Witkowski, yeah. yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. You know, played a huge role in a lot of this. Mm. So you had you, you had this uh, explosion of information that was coming out, and it was coming out. You know, the Germans were the ones researching all of this, and there wasn't a peep about it in this country. Right. So I thought, well, you know, somebody's got to tell this story, um, you know, and at least raise the questions. I'm mm. not trying to say that I've made a conclusive case for any of this, but I think I've at least made a solid uh, kind of prima facie case that, that this is something that people need to look at and, and consider very carefully. Mm. 
Well, if you manage to to see through the the allied myth already that young, I mean, you must r- really have wondered about the JFK thing when that happened. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was a little boy when when President Kennedy was assassinated, and as a matter of fact, that Friday, I was home sick from school. Hmm. So I literally watched the news reports as as they happened, and mm. and uh, was it fishy to you? Oh yes, absolutely. Mm. You know, it was fishy. It was fishy to me, uh, but you know, I I had my little boy intuitions confirmed when my dad came home from work that night, and you know, was watching the news, and you know, I could just hear him grumbling, and you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I knew, you know, when he starts to grumble, I knew that there was something up. You know, I'll tell you, even here in Norway, people were crying when that happened. Oh yeah, but yeah. we will not have time to get into JFK that much. I know uh, it's too far ahead in the timeline, but. Right. Um, Uh, I want to I want us to ponder a little uh, uh, on uh, about what they were up to after they came to Argentina. In fact, uh, also maybe you, we could uh, try to make a case for why Argentina, because there are other theories out there. Uh, but mm-hmm. before that, I want to ask you another speculative question uh, sure. that I just pulled out of my ass. But uh, <laughs> who knows? Uh, You have the bell, and that was uh, exclusive technology. Now we also know from, for instance, Bosley's work that, and already you told us last time that they did work upon this in the 20s and the 30s. But right. obviously, uh, even if they got something done, it wasn't completed at any point. It's probably just an ongoing project anyway. But remember, we talked about Antarctica, right? And let's say, and this is high octane speculation here. But let's say that they did find something which triggered Hess' uh, weird uh, journey to England, to Scotland. Now, let's right. say that they did find something from a prior civilization that was advanced. Sure. And that was in 38-39, right? And, and we know yeah. they yeah. already were building on a bell. And, right. and then there was the war going on and they were pressed for resources and everything. So could it be that what they found down there could have been some technological thing that could have helped or speeded up or influenced the Bell project in some way, since they suddenly got some kind of success after the, after Antarctica. They made it levitate and everything. Could there be a connection there? Well, well, possibly. Um, the 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 problem is we know so little about that whole expedition. Um, you can go online and you really have to dig. To find some pictures that purport to be from that expedition of very, very large caves mm-hmm. in Antarctica. And, you know, the fact that you have someone like Hess and Goering, you know, these yeah. two people hated each other <laughs> for one thing. But, you know, the fact that these two of all the people in the Nazi hierarchy would would have sponsored such an expedition. Goering isn't interested in fairy tales or mythology <laughs> but he is interested in technology and he is interested in technology so you know for Hermann Goering to be involved with this thing does raise to my mind the possibility that they may have found something down there I mean it is it is an alternative to the crashed saucer speculation right right and it, it certainly falls within the purview of the types of projects that the SS was involved in. We have mm. to remember that both Hess and Goering 
in addition to holding rank in, in the Luftwaffe and, and in the National Socialist Party, that both of these these uh, men were also SS generals. They were also members of the SS. Yeah. So, you and know, pilots. Uh, yeah, exactly. interested in in aerial weaponizing uh, technology. Right, yeah. right. So you you have this interest. They're they're clearly going after something down there, and it's not just simply how to figure out how to eat penguins and survive in, <laughs> you know, survive in Antarctica. They have, the, they have the local zoo for that. <laughs> yeah, they have the local zoo for that. You know, so. Mm. We have to we, we have to remember that you know these these two gentlemen are, are they're not idiots number one Gehring especially and they're not going to get involved in a project that you know is just for fun and games and and go down and plant swastikas in the ice there's some other there's some other agenda here but no one really knows what it is because this expedition to this day has been so so deeply covered over that it's next to impossible to get anything really meaty or juicy about it. Let me play the devil's advocate for a moment sure. here. Uh, mm -hmm. You have a popo the idea that they could have worked on the bell in Antarctica because you have argued that the, it would be practical, it would be too resource demanding, right. although they could have a base, but not a base for that. So you, you're going with the Argentina version and, and which may be right, of course, and, but you have indicated yourself that they moved the project back and forth. So here's my, my devil's lawyer question. Mm -hmm. If they had a base, well, we know they had base there, but let's say they had a, a base that survived the war because Albert Richter did, according to Lavenda, I think, was mm -hmm. very central in, in post-war uh, Odessa Nazi network connection. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't just go under a rock and disappear. He was involved. And he would know. He would be involved in a base. Now, mm -hmm. let's say they had a base. Let's say, and you just made a point in part one that it's not a very demanding, it's a very practical project because they don't need like a Manhattan project resource right. to do this. But then your big point has been, yeah, but they didn't have the energy it demanded. Now, here's right. my suggestion. What if they had access to free energy at this point? Well, if they had access to that at that point, then my my suspicion would be that they would, first of all, have have immediately tried to weaponize it and, and used it. Uh, yeah, but I'm talking 1945, 1946. I'm talking. Oh, about I see. Okay, after the war, where the bell went. Right. Okay. Well, if they had, if they had that kind of access, um, they they would have been, I think, hard pressed to develop it as a practical, immediately usable energy source. And here's why: you have to remember what Richter himself in Argentina is saying about his project. What he's saying is that plasmas under rotation, precessional rotation, under electromagnetic stress, using Lamora precession frequency and all of the stuff he outlines, mm. functions as a gateway, as a kind of a sluice gate for the zero-point energy. So in other words, his project is still in the um, conceptual exploratory stage let's put it this way this is what he's telling the american interrogators that that the united states 
sent down to Buenos Aires to interview secretly. Just to clarify, this is uh, the Bell scientist Ronald Richter and not yeah. Albert Richter that I just right. mentioned. Yeah. Mm. Right, right. And he says this when? He says this in 1954 to American U.S. Air Force. Yeah, Air but why would he give away the the big? Uh, I mean, he's not stupid. If he's involved, he, he knows better than well, to spill the beans. Well, at this point, it's important to remember. At this point, Richter has been under house arrest in Buenos Aires, and the, he's basically been shut out. Ah. The project was closed down, and in my opinion, probably moved somewhere else. We don't know where. I mean, it just disappears. But Perón places him under house arrest in in um, in Buenos Aires, so Richter's out of the loop. So you know he's got nothing to lose. He's trying to get if you read well. if you read the documents in in the Nazi International, what Richter's trying to do at this point mm-hmm. is get to the United States so that he can. Uh, pursue his research in in the american military establishment yeah and and probably live just as comfortably as, yeah. as his his brethren in in the paperclip but right uh, what about this uh if he was involved like this he works on the borman he knows the influence that borman still has he knows oh, yeah. that is he not even safe in america i mean they they got right. infiltration in cia they got infiltration in nato stay behind gladio odessa it would be his death signature if he if he admitted anything they would have finished him off well, another way to look at it is he may have been trying to get to America to to under orders, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, he, he may have been yeah. trying. Uh, yeah, mm. you know, I, I don't put anything past these people. You know, it's, mm. uh, you, you know, the Nazis are Nazis after all. <laughs> They're going to do things Nazis are famous for. Um, and there is a bit of evidence to kind of suggest that something like that's going on because in another one of my books um, called Roswell and the Reich, I point out that. American counterintelligence uh, in 1947, right after the Roswell incident, gets very suspicious about some of these Nazis that it's allowed into uh, into New Mexico and into Texas, and the chief of which that they are suspicious of is Dr. Kurt Davis. You know, so. So we're back to square one again. So, you know, I don't put anything past these people. American counterintelligence at the time was noticing that the Nazis appeared to be uh, practicing or having some sort of, of dead drop, a mail drop inside of Mexico, right over the border from El Paso. And the other thing that counterintelligence noticed was that they appeared to keep their command structure entirely intact. And that they were receiving instructions from somewhere that they didn't know. And, exactly. You know. Yeah, because my point here is that uh, I'm really trying to crack the Antarctica riddle. Because if we shall, <laughs> ru- yeah, if we rule out Hollow Earth, if we rule out alien bases, we have 1947. You just mentioned it. Let's say then that. Because why would it be an either-or? They need to have one foot in civilization and know places better than than the pseudo-Nazi state of Peron. Right. But they also need something more secret than the prancing pony with a big mouth Peron. Right. So what if they had both Antarctica and Argentina? And that would be very easy communication too, right? It's oh, I don't, I don't. Mm. Oh, oh, I don't, I don't. Let, let me be very clear. Mm. I don't discount that they had something post-war in Antarctica. Mm. I don't discount that at all. What I'm discounting 
is the idea that they had a, a fully functioning research facility, right. you know, for flying saucers and bells and so on and so forth in Antarctica. And the reason I'm discounting that is is twofold. Number one, the Bell Project would have required such enormous energy, and Antarctica simply wouldn't have been able to supply it. I mean, they'd have to build a power plant down there and then keep that uh, supplied. Free energy, but okay. okay. Well, again, but yeah. you see, the problem is there's no documentary evidence for this. The only, That's true. That's the true only suggestion, yeah, the only suggestion we have of that kind of energy thinking is with Dr. Richter in Argentina with his project, and mm. there we do have a documentable case that we're dealing with equipment that's coming to him from Germany, from the AEG company, the Allgemeine Elektrizitätsgesellschaft. Mm. So, in other words, Argentina, or pardon me, Antarctica, I don't go with simply because, number one, the parameters of the project would have required things that simply would not have been feasible in, Ar in Antarctica. Mm. But I'm not discounting the possibility that they had something there by way of a base, but we simply don't have enough information about what it may have been. But I don't think it was a research facility in in the sense that you see in so much ufology literature about, you know, Nazi flying saucer bases in Antarctica and so yeah, on. Yeah, like some kind of Vatican state down there. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I, I'm with you on that. But let's say then that they are south in Argentina because it's so close to the Antarctica, for one. Right. They, there's a million reasons for Argentina and, and Bariloche and all that. But let's say then that they do what they need to do in Argentina and then they ship it over to Antarctica to hide it, so to speak. Because then we can get to 1947, because the first thing which is suspicious about 1947 hmm. is the Operation High Jump, which we covered in... Really, we beaten to death here uh, <laughs> in this. But then we have the Admiral Byrd saying that the future enemy, a new enemy, could fly from pole to pole at incredible speeds. And we right. know that many of the planes that Byrd uh, expedition supposedly were there to, you know, map the area. But uh, why... <laughs> How on earth did they manage to get all, all these planes shot down and people dying and fleeing early with their tail behind their legs? And mm -hmm. then what uh, what happens shortly after? Uh, maybe you could actually date it for us. Uh, when did Roswell happen uh, compared to High Jump? Uh, high Jump ended in, uh, Feb I think it was February of 1947. And then Roswell was, I believe, July 3rd, from, from July 3rd to about July 7th. Right. So you see, then, okay, let's send one of our, maybe to, to threaten the Americans or, or to spy. Right. They know about it already. Right. When did the CIA approximately? Ha, okay. This is very interesting because President Truman signs the National Security Act of 1947 into law in September of 1947 right. Right. You and see? this is yeah this you know when you when you look at this timeline in that Whoa. way it becomes incredibly suspicious yeah. and when you add to this the fact that you know we create the national security agency the the signals intelligence uh spy organization of the united states yeah. well what is national security agency in german yeah, it's yeah, right, yeah. It's yeah. it's Reichssicherheitshauptamt. Mm, mm. <laughs> so you know, right. so you know, we're we're even creating these these huge umbrella 
intelligence organizations on kind of a Nazi line. You know, so. you know, you know th- this is an orgy of speculation. But oh, yeah. li- listen to this. So, yeah, okay, yeah. they've okay, these bastards. We thought we crushed them. They are down there somewhere. They have this right. incredible exotic technology. Uh, we can't win. Let's send another expedition because they sent another expedition shortly after, a couple of years after, which didn't get shot down. Maybe that was an, uh, more a diplomatic. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> and then CIA. <laughs> since you raised yeah. that subject. <laughs> let's put it this way since you raised that subject. Yeah. I find it incredibly suspicious, okay, mm-hmm. that in 1958, in the, in the 1958 geophysical year, mm-hmm. That the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union all agreed to each detonate right. over the claimed area of Antarctica that the Nazis claimed in, in 38 and 39, yeah. that each of these nuclear powers detonated nuclear weapons in the atmosphere over that region of Argentina. In the atmosphere. Yes, in the atmosphere, over over that region of Argentina. And, of course, all of this was, you know, we're experimenting with the Aurora Borealis and, and the Van Allen belts, you know. But, oh, hey, by the way, we're just setting these things off this little region of Antarctica. Because we know, we know yeah. that UFOs and nuclear weapons have a connection. We know that oh, yes, yes, UFOs absolutely. are worried about the new. It would well, disturb yeah. them, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, it. it I, I think that the possible hidden story here, since we're indulging in an orgy of speculation, yeah. as you call it, let's admit that. I yeah. think I think the hidden the hidden story here is precisely this Nazi Antarctic expedition, mm. that they were aware of something, mm. and they've never come out and said anything about it. You know, and to this day, I find it incredibly suspicious that. Mm. Antarctica is the one continent on the globe where everybody agrees yeah. not to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And oh, it's an untouched area. They don't care oh, yeah. about untouched area anywhere else. Right, exactly. Huh. So, you know, all of this to me is extremely suspicious. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the sequence of events here is, to my mind, uh, if nothing else, it is at least highly suggestive that there's a hidden history going on here that the nazis have something to do with it Mm. but we just simply don't know what it is the the one thing i'm not going to is is this idea that the germans had this big huge flying saucer you know research facility that they had built in antarctica and this is where but they could have that in patagonia sure they could have it just a stone throw away yeah you know why bother with antarctica when you can use the caves of the andes mountains Mm. (laughs) exactly so, you know, I think I think the the Antarctica thing, whatever's going on there, uh, it's still a big secret. We simply don't know what's going on there. But we do know there were many U-boats in the area after the war. Oh, yes, absolutely. Between absolutely. Antarctica and South America. And some even oh, yeah. uh, gave themselves up to Peron after having been in Antarctica, yep. which is suspicious. Yep. Hey, here's another idea. I'm just throwing it out there. It's just coming to me here. Sure, I, I agree with you. They couldn't have like a huge base and stuff. But what if they found 
something Some. in, intact from ancient times. Because remember, Joseph, scientists tell us today that Antarctica is extremely hollow. There's huge caverns under the ice. Oh, yes. We, yeah. we already know about Lake Vostok and all that. So, I right. mean, that's that's even more speculative. But, you know, we can't rule that out either. I don't rule that out at all. Um, the, the, the degree of secrecy that the Germans clamped on that Antarctica expedition after it returned to Germany. You know, Goering cast the commemorative medal, and that's the last you heard of it. Mm. You know, there were a few newsreels that, that ran on, on Deutsche Welle and so on, but, um, pardon me, uh, Deutsche Wochenschau, and, and, after that, you know, you never heard of it again. It just dropped right off. Even the, even yeah. the Brits, they kill off uh, Mr. Hess and uh, never talks yeah. about it. Yeah. So, uh, and that's your base for you, the huge facility you were talking about. That could be be also a thing down there. Oh yeah, those those caverns would have made. You know, they did this in Greenland. You know, they used they used ice oh. caves, caves in the ice in Greenland for U-boat bases. And and this is mainstream. We know this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that they they at least did something like that with with Antarctica and then uh, Tierra del Fuego at the southern tip of of South America. There's no doubt in my mind. But um, exactly what yeah. they may have found, you know, th- there's such a lid of secrecy on this that you know to this day it's next to impossible to find out anything. But, but are we positive about the atom bomb that's something we know that's official too that they did nuke the area over in the area oh yes yeah that's quite true 1958 because uh, mr dolan hadn't heard about it he was a little skeptical i think because he had seen some kind of survey of all the nuclear tests going on since uh, the beginning and he said that he didn't think that was in the official records but uh, no, it's not. I, I told him to to ask you about it because I read it in your book. Yeah, it's a nineteen it's a nineteen fifty eight geophysical year. Mm. Yeah. So uh, let's say then that CIA is shortly after High Jump and Roswell. They they need this CIA thing. Uh, by the way, it's kind of weird too because. They were so on board with the Nazis, and I've always wondered who really called the shots. <laughs> uh, Nazis, Bormann, to put it like that, or Truman. I mean, the Dulce brothers. They, oh yes, definitely. They were they were Nazis. There is. Uh, well, they yeah, the Dulles brothers are that segment of of Wall Street uh, American capitalism and and uh, lawyer partnerships. You know, Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street. The Dulles brothers are essentially from that wing of American corporate fascism. There's there's no other way to put it. Uh, and, you know, it's it's not accidental in my mind that you have Alan Dulles ending up, you know, for so many years after the wars as the director of the CIA, because this is the guy that, number one, brokered the helped broker these deals with with Nazi intelligence during the war. Right. So he was in a certain sense, he was the logical choice. Mm. To become the director of, of central intelligence after the war, mm. so yeah, that's that's a whole other you know that that whole history of of American history is just so murky and, and dark that we'll take it on in the future. But wasn't sure. there were they not also involved in OSS before CIA? Oh yes, yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, Alan Dulles was the OSS uh, station chief in in uh, Zurich, and he and his brother John Foster 
were part of the American delegation to the to Versailles after the end of World War One. Right. So you know these guys are are very very connected to this whole mm. group of people. Another one to to remember is is John McCloy, mm. who was the American lawyer for I. G. Farben before the war. He he actually shared a box with with Hitler at, at the Berlin Olympics. And then after the war, well, what is he? He's the American high commissioner for Germany. <laughs> so, you know, this is the guy that's pardoning 70,000 Nazis after the war, <laughs> yeah. you know, that go on to end up in, in Chancellor Adenauer's cabinet. So Again, know. one of these economists who thinks oh, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> in that way. Yeah. So we have this post-war Nazi influence then all over the place. We, we know they have the research. We know they have the money we know they have the spy power and they have heavily infiltrated even american intelligence and science so the question then is you know then there's this conflicting thing about going with england and soviet to bomb antarctica so there's probably a power struggle within america after the war oh yes as to the nazi <laughs> faction i mean hoagland has also indicated this in nasa the masons versus the nazis right 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 so so the exploding of the bomb it could be a huge chess game going on actually oh yeah yeah I think it is. this is what you assert too, isn't it? Well, yeah. You have to remember in the United States after the, after the war, uh, from say the period of 1947 up to 1954, you had all of these <clears throat> congressional committees. McCarthy is is obviously the most famous that yeah. that people think of with with going after all the communist sympathizers and so on that were there i mean you know this is another part of history that that again has been so uh deliberately obfuscated um you know uh, he he was part of a wider phenomenon in in the united states the the house had two congressional committees House of Representatives investigating these things. You had the McClellan Committee investigating the mafia mm. during this period. You had McCarthy, of course, investigating security risks within the State Department and other departments of government. So you had all of these committees that knew that there was something rotten. Something rotten. But if you stop and step back from it, what's really interesting to me, Al, is, is that you don't see anybody looking at that period of American history and looking at it whole because what do you have? Well, you have this Nazi CIA nexus on, on the one hand. Mm. You have the whole uh, Alger Hiss, Whitaker Chambers thing that goes on with Nixon and the House on American Activities Committee. Mm. You had the McCarthy, uh, you had the McCarthy committees mm. that were investigating all these security risks. So what you really had were all of these uh, leftover radical leftists from the Roosevelt administration, some of whom were communists, as it turns out, and Jews. Yeah, exactly. You you had all of this going on. You had the the mafia investigations, mm. and then you had Nazis. Mm. So if you look at it a certain way, I think it may be possible. Again, I'm speculating. I haven't done enough research to make a, a anywhere close to an arguable case. Mm. But I think as a hypothesis, you have to entertain the idea that what may have been going on in this country behind the scenes is a tremendous fight mm. 
between these kind of uh, American corporate fascists like the Dulles brothers, the, the Nazi faction, the paperclip scientists on the one hand, and then all of the holdover uh, kind of radical progressive socialists that you had left over from the Roosevelt administration. Mm. And all of this is going on at the same time. And nobody is connecting the dots between these committees. And that, to me, is a key thing that has yet to be done. Mm. for for historiography in that period of, of American history. I think it's uh, a huge underground battle that, that's taking yeah, place. Yeah, but, but you know, the real scary scenario here is if only one part of the battle knew about the battle, if you understand what I mean. Yes, I because do. Because yeah. if the, yeah. the non-Nazis right. didn't realize what was going on, right. uh, a more fifth column than this you can't get. And... Uh, Right. That's that's right. pretty scary because they had it was so easy for them to take over with all this influence. Right. It it is a huge um, unwritten part, I think, of of American history. Um, it's there are there are historians in this country now that are beginning to re-examine the whole uh, McCarthy uh, mm-hmm. period and and all of that with with a different view. But you know that's going to be slow to change. Because there's been so much propaganda about not only the man but what was going on. Yeah, Nazi Hydra in America. Yeah, exactly. Comes to mind. Exactly, yeah. the Nazi Hydra in America. This is the other thing, and then of course, you also have all of these investigations of the mafia at mm. going on at precisely the same time. And what's really interesting is if you start to dig into the details of these various congressional committees, you start to notice overlap between all of them. Mm. But, you know, like I say, this is a history that nobody has examined in quite that way, that there's this huge uh, factional infighting going on behind the scenes. Oh, my God. You know what I just realized? If your scenario for Roswell is right, which I think and many people think is, then the incentive to keep it secret is even bigger if the Nazis are influential in the system. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I never realized that before. Yeah. And let's add something else to the mix here. President Truman, you know, he 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 comes into office quite literally, you know, but not expecting to come into office. But Roosevelt dies and and he's confronted with all of these uh, quite bluntly, all of these security risks that Roosevelt tolerated. Mm. So Truman, Truman institutes his loyalty review board. And this is what really kind of gets McCarthy started. But the other thing that Truman does that, that I don't think people have really picked up on and realized the sweeping significance of Mm. is that in the same year of 1947, right after he's established the CIA and the NSA and and the National Security Council and all these intelligence think tanks and groups, Mm. the other thing he does is he decides to recover all of that Japanese loot Mm. and keep it a state secret. In other words, what Truman did in 1947 is he put the American intelligence apparatus into the banking business right. and created a, you know, we're not even talking the black budget here. The black budget in the United States is, is all of these funds that Congress appropriates mm. and simply turns over to the military and turns over to the intelligence agencies to do whatever they want to do with. 
Okay. Yeah, but that's kind of on the books, isn't it? The Blackbird. That's kind of on the books. Yeah. What Truman did is he set up an entirely hidden system of finance that mm-hmm. is entirely off the books and not subject to congressional review. Hmm. So he puts the intelligence agents. So in other words, Truman has created a huge secret that he's got to keep. And with all of these congressional committees, you know, McClellan and all these people poking around, trying to figure out what the heck is going on, Mm. this is a huge secret, I think, that in part lies at at the heart of his response to these committees. And, of course, he passes this off to Eisenhower, Mm. who does pretty much the same thing. Yeah, but were they compromised? What were their motivation for? No, I don't think I don't think this system was compromised because it, you know this didn't even come out in anybody's research until uh, Sterling and, and Peggy Seagrave wrote. No, I wrote, mean versus the Nazis, whose side were they on? Whether they did this, these things? Oh well, the Nazis were always on their own side. No, but the presidents, Truman and and. Um, well, Truman. This is the other part of the story. Truman. Um, handed down an executive order, quite literally, that no known Nazi was to be brought over here. So what, ah. the, what the American military did was they simply sanitized their records. Right. So in other words, the military and, and the intelligence communities are, are quite simply disobeying. You know? They are already compromised. Oh, yes. yeah, they are already compromised, exactly. And this is a huge, as you can probably tell, this is a huge security risk mm. That you know the United States is taking simply to to fight communism to invite all these people over here, and you know as as I point out in Roswell and the Reich, it it gets to the point in in 1947, shortly after Roswell, that the U.S. Army counterintelligence decides to reopen the security files on these people and check them out again. Yeah. So you know it's it's a huge. Uh, it's a huge festering pustule, and I really don't think that President Truman was ever really fully assessed about what was going on. I, I really don't. They were fighting ghosts in blind, so to speak. Yeah, they were. They were fighting. They were each. All of these committees are are fighting their own little narrow brief, yeah. and what they're not doing, you know, what they're doing is adequate as far as it goes. But what they're not doing is they're not connecting dots with no. each other. It's split and rule, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And and that's why it's so scary that uh, JFK starts to talk closest cooperation with the Soviet Russians because right. that's the hugest global split and rule. If they start to join forces, if they start to realize what's going on, right. Right. They may smoke out the Nazis from the bushes. Yeah, they you know, if JFK if JFK had had another administration, Hmm. Uh, American society and American politics would look very, very different than they do now. You know, again, I go back to the fact that I was a boy when that happened. Hmm. And I can tell you, and anybody who lived through that in this country and saw it happen Hmm. can tell you that this country has never been the same Hmm. after that, ever. Hmm. Because essentially what it was, it it was – it was a coup d'etat, mm. and you know it brought into into American government the the deep seated kind of right leaning corporate fascist interest that has never ever uh, pried loose 
of power after no. that event. No. We, we'll get to that. It's still around. Yeah. But here's, oh, yeah. the th- here's the thing. Many people look at this as the beginning of the end, but I think it's the end of the beginning because yes. no, 1947 is more to my mind now the turning point where yes. things really, where, where they started this. Because you cannot take over, you cannot have a coup d'etat that you plan uh, the day before. This has right. to be a long thing in the works. Right. Right. Uh, probably from 47 and up. Well, um, yeah, I mean... Bowman is a genius. I have to hand it to him. You you have all of these vested corporate interests in this country, and many of them, you know, as as we've been pointing out, many of them are plugged into this Nazi apparatus in, in some form or fashion. Mm. Uh, I don't want to give people the impression that I that I think Nazis are in charge of the country, even though, you know, you have to question some American policies <laughs> lately. But... Um, but what I'm really trying to trying to point out here with with this post-war period from say 47 up to 54, 55, that period of American history with all these congressional investigations is that they're each like the blind man feeling the elephant. Mm. You know, one blind man is feeling the tail and describes the elephant as a tail. The other one feels the trunk and so on. And no one is putting all of this together in one comprehensive picture. And the astonishing thing, Al, is that if you read popular American history, even with all of the revisionism coming out now uh, about Senator McCarthy and his investigations, even then, no one is sitting down to present all of this, including the UFO problem, in a comprehensive picture of what's going on in this country to this day. Well, I, I'll claim you and Lavanda and a few others do, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but even there, you know, we're 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 focused on the Nazi part of this story. But you've got mafia involvement here. You've got another famous congressional investigation taking place as all these others are occurring, called the Reese Committee, right. which is investigating foundations. The found, you know, Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, that's investigating these foundations. And coming up with some very, very, you know, uh, kind of frightening conclusions. But no one is sitting down to look at all of these congressional committees and investigations and view them whole. Mm -hmm. To this day in the United States, and for that matter, the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. this period of American history has still yet to receive a comprehensive, thorough, detailed analysis. Right. To this day, mm-hmm. what we have on the in reality in this country, which is, I think, very frightening, we have a, a kind of an official narration, which is about as far from the truth mm-hmm. in each of these committees' cases as you can get. And, you know, the, you, you start talking to certain people in this country to this day about the Kennedy assassination. Well, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald did it. Mm. You've got this massive hole of, of history that has yet, in my opinion, to be written in, in an mm. adequate fashion. Yeah, it is uh, Brave New World, uh, 1984, yes. all yes. this stuff. It's, it's, uh, You're absolutely a parody. Right. it's a parody of our civilization. Well, it's a parody of history. You know, of history. It, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's move back to, to post-war here, uh, early post-war. Last time I mentioned 1947, you said there was a fourth thing happening. And 
uh, surprised me with doubling down with Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, how <laughs> does that fit into this picture? Well, that's very interesting because the Dead Sea Scrolls, in so many ways, the first thing that you have to note is the Rockefeller involvement with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They fund a lot of this, and therefore a lot of it gets uh, kind of shuffled off to the Vatican and other places and not really talked about. When did it happen, by the way? Uh, I believe it was around March or April of 1947. I'd have to I'd have to go back and I'd, and check the exact right month. after high jump. It was right after high jump, before right before Oswald. right right before Kenneth Arnold and then Roswell and all mm. of that. Mm. So this is a significant year, and you had you know persistent rumors swirling around the Dead Sea Scrolls about cover-ups going on even there. Yeah. Until. Uh, <clears throat> Pardon me. Until um, John Allegro mm. opened the Copper Scroll and, and then published his results and, and set off, you know, a treasure hunting uh, fever in in that part of the world, looking for the lost treasure of the temple. But his take on it was very weird. He talked about the mushroom oh, yeah. cult. Oh yeah, the mushroom <laughs> cult, and oh yeah, well, yeah. Anyway. that was John Allegro. But. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, as, as a biblical scholar, you know, he, he was the one that, that uh, popularized the, the treasure scroll. And uh, even there, you know, I think that that is a document that has been profoundly misinterpreted. Mm. Uh, I think to a certain extent, possibly, delib yeah. po possibly deliberately. But, um, yeah, 1947 is, is a pivotal year because you have all of these things happening. Mm. And... Uh, To, to a certain extent, the United States, at least as far as some of these official things, Roswell, High Jump, and so on, is kind of floundering around. You know, uh, it's it's reacting rather than than being proactive. Mm. And you know, Truman is is the one that's trying to put all this together and, and do it in a hurry. You know, yeah. because uh, the the American military. With Roswell, regardless of how you interpret it, extraterrestrial or, or Nazi or what have you, uh, the American military is is uh, caught, so to speak, sleeping, and and now they realize they've got not just communists to worry about, but there's something else on the scene, yeah. and uh, we we've got to do something, and we've got to do it in a hurry. And we need a lot of money for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do you think the the Nazis had influence in the military too? To a certain extent, yes, I do. Because uh, uh, keeping the lid, they were the one who first spilt the beans on on the UFOs. But then they were also the one who who immediately kept uh, took a lid on it. Yes. One of the things uh, to show you how much of an influence they had early on in the American military. You've got all these Nazi rocket scientists down there in New Mexico, von Braun, Arturo Rudolph, and so on. Mm. And they're firing off these V2s and teaching the Americans how to do this. Well, there are two very famous, although I, I say famous, but they're also kind of little-known incidents that I talk about in Roswell and the Reich. The Germans set off a V2 deliberately, to land in Juarez, Mexico, 
So in other words, you know, we didn't even have control over these V2s that were launching. The Germans are launching these V2s yeah, all the over the place. Yeah, the paperclip Germans, right? Yeah, the paperclip yeah. Germans are launching these V2s and deliberately target the city of uh, of Juarez, Mexico. Wow. <laughs> you know, and of course the Mexican government wasn't too happy about this. And you know, this 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 was the first little clue that the United States Army had that you know maybe we'd better uh, look at these guys again, you rain know, them and, in. Yeah. <laughs> rain them in. And then the other thing that I find even more interesting is that in one of these test B2 launches, incidentally, I think it was the year 1947, they, they sent up one of these V2s and had fit a camera system in the nose cone. Okay. Mm. So these Germans launched this V2 with the camera in the nose cone and the nose cone separates from the V2 and descends with parachutes, clicking away merrily with its camera over our secret defense installations. And when we go out to recover the camera in the nose cone, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> Someone was waiting on the other side. Someone was waiting. On <laughs> and my guess is they I came guess from is, the south, huh? Yes. yes. <laughs> further my down, guess, I mean. Yeah, further down <laughs> south. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You wow. know, it's, it's either them or the KGB. You know? <laughs> so, so. I don't think the KGB was that influential in Mexico at the time. Oh, actually, on the contrary, they were all over New Mexico. Yeah, they were. Oh, yes, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, Stalin. But do you think the Soviet Russians knew what was going on here? Well, I think they had they had enough of a good idea what was going on. It's very interesting that when Roswell occurred, the KGB, this is not a very well-known uh, fact. It was it was the NKVD at the time, but um, the the NKVD actually drew up a report mm. from uh, about the Roswell incident for Stalin. Mm. So in other words, you know, the the Russians are, you know, they're not to be counted out, as we know, by any means. <laughs> no, but Stalin's paperclip scientist, wasn't that more low-level uh, and more nuclear physicists uh, type of... Well, Stalin, the interesting thing about the, the way the Nazis divvied up the spoils at the end of yeah. the war, they were very, very clever in the way that they went about it. Um, and, and I say that, you know, in all seriousness, it's not accidental the way that they're driving the, the division of the spoils. It's very deliberate. It's very calculated. What they did is, if you look carefully, let's just take the rocket projects for, you know, as, as one example. Mm. <clears throat> what the United States got, <coughs> pardon me, were the, the big names. We got the creme de la creme. Mm. We got the Von Brauns, the Arthur Rudolphs, the Hubertus Strugholz, the Kurt Davises. We got all the big names. What the Soviets got were the middle echelon managers, mm -hmm. the middle echelon draftsmen. That Very fitting for Soviet Union, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what the Soviets got were all these people yeah, yeah. that could reconstruct the document trail. Ah. Yeah, right. so you know we get the big names with the plans and the blueprints, and the Soviets get the guys that that drew up the blueprints, and so on and so forth. So it was a very clever division of spoils because Korolev in, in the Soviet Union, of course, put all these put all these Nazis to work in in their missile program. Mm. And what do we see happen? Well, we see those peculiar Russian-designed rockets, the bundle rockets. 
you know, with, with several uh, boosters kind of clustered around a central bo booster. Well, this was actually a German idea that was, was uh, being talked about from 1942 on up to the end of the war, mm. just lumping a bunch of these things together to create a very powerful booster. Well, this is what you see the Soviets doing after the war. Right. So, in other words, it's this Nazi... Uh, feedstock of, of ideas into the Soviet rocket program that really quickly jumpstarts them after the war. And when the Soviets are done with them, you know, and when Sergei Korolev has learned all he can from them, the Soviets send them back to Germany. You know, we don't need you anymore. You know, we're going to have our own secret project now. So oh, they didn't, they didn't kill them off? No, no. They, they let many of these people go back to Germany. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But okay, but did they get the right scientists to to construct a saucer you think anti-gravity? I think yes, I think I don't know so much about uh anti-gravity or field propulsion things, but they did get some very very unusual scientists. They they received a German radar team under uh, a German radar scientist by the name of Dr. Richard Hellmann. Mm -hmm. who at the end of the war, the Germans were testing their uh, phased array radars on their stealth material, their, mm -hmm. their, their rubber stealth coating that they were putting on their late model U-boats. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, this was in March of 1945, I believe, And what they did, they they were they were using the interferometry. They were beam mixing uh, different beams from different radar transmitters on this nonlinear material. And what happened was, they discovered the phenomenon of phase conjugation, which meant that the material reflected a, a kind of time reversed wave back onto the radar sets and blew them out. Wow! And this radar team was captured by the Soviets. At the end of the war, as they're as they're rolling into uh, Silesia and Pomerania and so on, mm. and they take this radar team, <coughs> Hellman and his radar team, back to the Soviet Union, along with some of this, pardon me, <coughs> along with some of this uh, stealthy material, and that kind of jump starts the the Soviet uh, research and the thinking of of Tom Bearden yeah. in into scalar mm. weaponry. That kind of kickstarts it. And again, you know, once once the Soviets have learned all they can from Hellman and his team, they let Hellman go. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Hellman, interestingly enough, ends up in Brazil. Of course. Everybody yeah, it, runs back yeah, to their... Everybody runs back to Brazil after they get done working for <laughs> yeah. Stalin, don't you know? So, yeah. So Hellman ends up in Brazil working for the Brazilian government on the same stuff, incidentally. And one of his compadres in some of these uh, secret Brazilian projects mm. is an American physicist, famous physicist, as a matter of fact, by the name of David Bohm. Mm. So, you know, this, this whole story... What, uh, David Bohm is very famous. What does he have oh, to yeah. do? Could you repeat what does he have to do with this? Well, David Bohm is, is famous for basically two things. Um, he's famous for a version of quantum mechanics called hidden variable quantum mechanics. Uh, what he was trying to do was was get rid of the randomness, the, the statistical elements in quantum mechanics by positing a, a kind of a deep structure, a, a hidden structure 
to the whole thing. Yeah, but was he connected to any of these German? Uh, oh no, no, David, no, David Bohm was Jewish. No, no, he right, certainly, right. No, okay, he certainly okay. wasn't directly connected with them. But the other thing that David <coughs> Bohm is famous for was he was also a plasma physicist. Right. And uh, Bohm noticed in many of his experiments with plasmas that plasmas had a peculiar <coughs> ability to self-organize and displayed all of the the characteristics of life except for the ability to regenerate. Hmm. So, pla you know, Bohm actually came to think of plasmas as 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 quasi, yeah, yeah. As, hmm. as as living beings hmm. and just abruptly quit researching right. in right. plasma. Yeah, yeah, he was a good guy. So yeah, he was yeah. Bohm was Bohm was a brilliant man. Hmm. Uh, you know, you can you can buy his textbook on on quantum mechanics and his theory of it to this day. Uh, he he was a quite brilliant man. But the reason I'm asking you about Soviet scientists is that, as you know, there is a book out there who claims that, uh, incidentally, that book came right after yours, and that claims that, oh yeah, 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 everything. Um, they don't know, don't name you, but oh, everything you said was right, except. It's from the Soviet. It's from Stalin. It's not the Nazis. It's, it's the Russians. Who said this? Well, there is a female author out oh, there. Oh, um, Anne Jacobson. Right. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I haven't read her book. I don't even know if she mentioned me or not. I'd be surprised if she did. No, I but think. she she kind of lays out the same case. Only she says it's from uh, no no the Soviet the, Union. Yeah, right. <laughs> hmm? Because there were no Nazis around, of course, so it had to come. Oh from, no, of yeah. course not. No, of course not. So, but uh, is this how realistic is this? Well, it's not realistic because um, there's, as far as I've been made aware of her work, I've never read it, so I'm going on hearsay here. But mm -hmm. as far as I have been made aware of her work, it's it's based on um, you know insider whistleblower anonymous source testimony, uh, and I find it. I would find it incredible, to be quite honest, without any sort of documentation backing it up, that this was going on inside the Soviet Union, at least for maybe five to ten years after the war. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't put anything past the Russians. They've, they've got some of the finest nonlinear physicists in the world in that yeah. country. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, in terms of, of mathematical physics, they're they're still you know first rate. So I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past them. You know, they don't need feedstock from Nazis. They're perfectly capable of thinking all this stuff up on their own. So you know, I, <laughs> yeah, they thought out of the box. Yeah, they, yeah, they hmm. sure did. Hmm. So you know, I don't I don't think we have to go to. Um, I don't think we have to go to that kind of thing, uh, you know, that that they're borrowing all of this or that it was Soviet. I think, but but that's that's later. That's not. Russia. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the Soviets, um, just like the United States, you know, after the war, particularly after they they detonate their first nuclear weapon, mm. I think at that point, you know, the Soviet Union, it's very clear, begins to have the same UFO problem that we do. When did they detonate it? Don't say. Uh, it was 19. Uh, let's see, 1949. Okay. Right. That was that was their first atom bomb test, and then their first uh, hydrogen bomb test. I think it was a uh, about a 400 kiloton device, and if I remember correctly, that was about 1950. 
354, somewhere in there. And then, uh, yeah, and then a few years later, let's bomb Antarctica. And then a few years later, let's bomb Antarctica. And then, of course, in, in 19, uh, October of 1961, you had them, uh, Khrushchev, I remember that, I was a boy when that happened, uh, detonated that enormous uh, 57 megaton hydrogen bomb, the, the so-called Tsar bomb up at uh, Novaya Zemlya, uh, up in the Arctic Circle. Right. This is a gigantic hydrogen bomb. Yeah, uh, close to our country. Well, yeah, it was, It was. you know, the detonation was so huge that there were actually windows broken in Norway. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it was a gigantic bomb. Yeah, but uh, uh, you say the best and the brightest went to America, but isn't it true that the really best and the brightest went to, to Argentina? I mean, who who did go to Argentina? Who did oh, Bormann and Perón get? Oh, who, uh, the people that went to Argentina are a really interesting list. You had, of course, uh, Ronald Richter with his so-called fusion project down there. But interestingly enough, you had Kurt Tank, the, the uh, German... Uh, airplane designer for the the Focke-Wulfe company, and then you had uh, you had both of the Horton brothers in Argentina. Mm. You had uh, Emile Dewitin from France that went to to Argentina, another uh, famous aerodynamic engineer. So you had all of the, you know it wasn't just and, and Gerlach didn't he go there too? No, Gerlach stayed in in West Germany after the war. Yeah, Gerlach oh. Gerlach remained. Gerlach is an odd duck here because Gerlach, most people don't know this. Gerlach was, of course, one of the scientists that was interviewed by the British at, at Farm Hall. And subsequently, this I find very peculiar. Subsequently, Gerlach was taken to the United States and most people, you have to really dig to find this this little fact out. But he stayed in the United States and was interrogated by the Americans for about three months. Now, that's interesting because in that group of scientists at Farm Hall, you had a nuclear chemist by the name of Paul Hartick who had actually calculated the uh, critical mass of, of uranium for a uranium-based bomb. Accurately. So, in other words, you know, this idea that the Germans didn't know how much they'd need is, is nonsense. They knew very w well how much they'd need. But none of these people were brought over to the United States to be interviewed. Mm. Not even Heisenberg, not Otto Hahn. It was Gerlach. And Gerlach, if you look at his, uh, so to speak, his, his brief within physics, Gerlach is interested in gravity, mm. in magnetism, mm. in spin polarization. In other words, this guy is, even though he's the nominal head of their A-bomb project, this is not the kind of scientist you want heading up an A-bomb project. His interests are entirely different. Mm. So in other words, the United States is bringing over to this country someone whose area of expertise is way, way different than anything really having to, anything to do with nuclear physics. And interestingly enough, and Nick Cook points this out in his excellent book, um, The Hunt for Zero Point, mm. after Gerlach returns to Germany, he completely avoids 
all of the subjects in physics that had interested him prior to the war. It's as if he is <laughs> warned off the reservation, so to speak. Right. Yeah, because there was a lid on that physics then. So oh, yeah, they, absolutely. They had to pretend it didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think I think Gerlach was uh, told, you know, do this and don't do that. Or if you know what's good for you, um, there's there's just no way of explaining this. This first class scientist turning his back on, on his major interests in physics. Yeah, because he was so involved in AEG, uh, Siemens, uh, Bell. Uh, but what about the other oh, yeah. Bell scientists? You mentioned Tonk. He went to Argentina. What about... Adler and the rest of the list that you have. Uh, oh boy, um, the Elizabeth Adler appears in the story in Witkowski's rendition uh, in his book, and I, I've actually corresponded with Igor. We have tried and tried and tried to find out who this lady was and what her expertise within mathematics was, and we have run up against a stone cold wall. <laughs> that's an indication, isn't it? That's a, that's a real yeah. That's a real huge indication. This it's as if this lady just dropped right off the map. Yeah. Uh, the other Bell scientist that's very prominent is, of course, Dr. Kurt Davis, who ends up in this country in NASA mm. as the senior flight administrator during Apollo. Now mm. let's look at Davis because Davis, his area of expertise is plasmas, high-voltage direct current electricity, and measurement. Mm. So in other words, you have to ask, in other words, this guy is not a rocket scientist. Mm. And he ends up as the senior flight administrator for the Apollo program at Cape Canaveral in Florida. This is the guy, in other words, who has his administrative fingers in just about every NASA pie that there is. And he's not even a rocket scientist. Mm. And that leads to the question, well, then, just what was he there for? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's have it in the air there. But what about, uh, okay, so Debus in America coordinating with his friends. We have Gerlach in Germany coordinating with his friends, the network. Mm -hmm. We have Debus and Richter in, no, not, uh, uh, sorry, Tonk, Kurt Tonk and Richter yes. down in Argentina. Right. And Adler, she vanishes. Yeah. Can we account for other Bell scientists, their whereabouts? Uh, one, one of the most famous scientists that was connected at some point, we don't know exactly how, mm -hmm. to the Bell project was Hermann Obert. Right. And, uh, you know, again, this is a signal that the bell is not anything to do with the German atom bomb project. Mm. Because Obert obviously is not a physicist, uh, not a nuclear physicist. He's a rocket scientist. He's interested in space travel and exploration and all of this stuff. Obert ends up being brought over to this country at the personal insistence of Werner von Braun. Mm. And Aubert becomes a kind of a, I don't know what you call it, an, an eminence grease, you know, to, 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 the, to the Nazi paperclip rocket scientists over here. And Aubert, while he's over in this country, he makes a number of, of uh, very, very strange statements. There's a famous interview that 
he gave to the American press at one point where he was asked, well, how did the Nazis, you know, achieve so much, you know, and so quickly, you know, this explosion of, of technology that occurred? And his answer, you know, typical Aubert, was, we had help. Right. Yeah. But he doesn't clear it. He, he just leaves it there. And everybody <laughs> thinks he's aliens. Well, aliens, you know, it could be. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the guy was... He was very cagey. He 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 did not volunteer uh, anything really. Well, uh, help. They could have got help if they found something in Antarctica. Well, that and and the other thing that you know that people need to remember about Aubert was he was one of these people that was fascinated with the occult too. So you know, ah. a very very strange guy. I, I smell Nimsa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I've good. educated myself since last time. <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful! I hope you have Walter on. That that's quite a. We've book. had him on. We've had him on. Oh, you did! Yeah, Excellent. and we'll Excellent. have him back too. A very popular program we had with him. But Excellent. before we wrap this up here, uh, we've been nerding now around these scientists. Let's just take right. it all the way out. What about this? Um, there's one guy you didn't mention here. Uh, the guy who was denounced by by uh, by Davis. Yeah, what was his Richard, name? Richard Kramer. Yeah, where did he end up? Well, that's another loose end. Um, after after he's mentioned by Davis and and the U.S. Army reopens the the counterintelligence files on Davis because of that incident, we don't know where Kramer ends up. Mm. Uh, he was released. I, I reproduce in Roswell and the Reich a document on uh, Hermann Goering's letterhead, as a matter of fact, mm. from Abraham Ezau, who was the plenipotentiary for nuclear physics research inside the Third Reich. So, in other words, a very important figure. Mm. And Ezau is writing this letter on Goering's letterhead to the Gestapo demanding that Richard Kramer, who had been denounced to the Gestapo by Davis, be released because his work is, is absolutely vital for this project that is uh, Kriegsentscheidend, decisive for the war. Yeah. And after he's released from the Gestapo, he returns apparently to his post at, at the um, Allgemeine Elektrizitätsgesellschaft, and after the war, you don't hear anything about it. Right. Now, I, sus I suspect that this is another one of those figures that was involved on the peripheries of, of the Bell Project that may have simply been brought out of Germany mm. and continued some sort of research elsewhere in the world. Um, he does not show up, to my knowledge, in Argentina. So wherever he goes after the war... <laughs> Antarctica. <laughs> Antarctica. He and Adler. <laughs> I, I would... Yeah. I, I'd, I'd vote if they ended up anywhere, it would be either in Chile or, or perhaps Brazil, mm. or if not in South America, perhaps Taiwan. Um, Taiwan, wow. Oh, yeah, that's another part of the story. <laughs> we can't go that's there today. Enough. We're pressed no. for time. But, um, okay, so we see here then that uh, they have, uh, probably you were then content that the leader of the Bormann Peron project after the war would then be a Richter because he's the most prominent 
Right. T- Tonk and Richter, they are the most prominent of the known Bell scientists that we can account for. Kurt, Kurt Tonk was never involved with the Bell. I mean, he was involved with some advanced aerodynamics projects in, in Germany. But to my knowledge, Kurt Tonk was never involved directly with the Bell. But oh, okay. uh, he is, yeah, he is in Argentina with the Horton brothers and, and Emile Dewitin from France. Um He's with this group of, of people that are designing very advanced aircraft for, for Juan Perón. Yeah, but listen, if they have had a breakthrough with the Bell already, uh, maybe that part of the technology isn't that essential anymore. Maybe they now need more aerial. Because you said yourself, they got the Bell to levitate, but they yes, but did not get it. They have not weaponized it yet. They, they don't know how to turn it the, into a UFO the, yet. The, the problem with the bell is twofold as far as a practical uh, field propulsion vehicle goes. Number one is all the indicators point to the fact that it needed enormous amounts of, of direct current and probably alternating current electricity. Mm-hmm. In other words, I've, I've always maintained that uh, the bell probably had two different types of, of electrical potential at work. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, in other words, it would have had to have been tethered to the ground. There's, there's no way you could, uh, with the technology back then, have capacitors with enough capability to, to, to produce the power that it needed. Uh, the other problem with the bell that there's no indication in any of of Vitkovsky's research. There's no indication in any of uh, Nick Cook that they ever solved the problem of all of the apparent radiation that the thing was spitting out. Mm. Uh, in, my, in my reconstruction, for example, I think that uh, that serum that they had in the, in the middle of the rotating cylinders inside the bell, that it may have incorporated thorium-229 thorium. isomer. Mm. And if that stuff went past the threshold of stability as it was being spun up and zapped with all that electricity, Mm. then what's going to happen is it would spit out just enormous amounts of gamma rays, Mm. which would be most likely lethal and and lethal very quickly. Mm. Uh, So I don't think, to my knowledge, there's no indication that they ever solved the problem of how to uh, protect themselves from all the lethal effects of that device. So I don't think that it ever became a, a practical at least at that time, a practical uh, field propulsion technology. No, but after the war, that's the point. And if Tonk and the Hortons are down there, they they have people who can turn stuff into more aerial, uh, practical aerial... uh, Well, yeah, but again, I don't think it was based on Bell technology. What you see see Tonk and, and the Horton brothers doing for Juan Perón is they're building these... In fact, I have a picture of one of these things in... um, in Roswell and the Reich, what they're doing is they're building these jet aircraft, these delta wing, uh, quite literally triangular shaped uh, jet aircraft for for Juan Perón, mm. which I think is again very interesting because that that particular configuration at that time mm-hmm. was you know decades of in advance of anything the United States, Great Britain, or, or yeah. the Soviet Union were flying. Uh, and, you know, the picture's right there. You can look at this thing and you're thinking, my word, this this is what they're doing in Argentina. Well, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. 
so yeah, I think Perón had uh, Perón had his uh, had his Nazi aerodynamics experts <laughs> that were producing. Right. But how how transparent? If we have a new Kammlerstab down in Argentina or or somewhere in the south there, and we have Bormann pulling the strings. Uh-huh. Um, then we have the involvement of this buffoon uh, Perón. Now, <laughs> how much in the know do you think he was? Uh, I I tend to think that Perón was partially in the know. <clears throat> in other words, if you look at Richter's project, as I review it in, in the Nazi International, it's very clear on the one hand that Perón knows that he's got this Nazi scientist working on fusion. And it's also very clear that Richter has told Perón something that indicates enough hope in the project for Perón to go and hold that news conference that he does in Buenos Aires in 1951. But, you know, Perón being Perón, he's he's simply wanting to steal a march on the United States at the time. Yeah. And the the interesting thing is once you get into the reaction to his comments and then Richter in the world press, Perón knows that something is wrong. And that's when he sets up that commission to investigate Richter's project. And that's when you see Richter behaving just completely absurdly you know for for a phd in in physics to be unaware of turning on his his radiation detectors and and placing you know radiation samples behind shielding and you know just wacky stuff that common sense would dictate to to an elementary school child Mm. you see richter doing all of these very strange things that i think he's being told to do to deliberately sabotage the project make it look ridiculous so that we can move it elsewhere and close it down here. That just goes to show that anything he does after that could yeah. be interpreted in the same light. He's still oh, yeah. following orders. Yeah, absolutely. And and Perón on that you know, on that reading of things isn't being kept entirely in the loop on the very project that he's helping to fund. Mm. So, yeah, I do think that Perón, uh, the Nazis are letting him have Kurt Tonk and the Horton brothers and design his advanced jet aircraft ah, so payment. show up, yeah, payment. Yeah, yeah. But they're, again, you know, they're keeping the really yeah. good stuff for, for themselves. themselves. But uh, I guess also it would be risky because even though Argentina was full of Germans and full of Nazis and full of sympathizers and a fascist dictatorship, we know from history there was battles between uh, different political factions and eventually Perón was ousted. So maybe it would have been too dangerous to let him know too much. Well, that's true. And the other thing that we have to remember here is is the the Argentine... uh, Central de Intelligencia, their their CIA, yeah. is is throughout this whole period from you know not not just Perón but his predecessor Edomilo Farrell, as a matter of fact, was his name. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from that period all the way up to Perón and his successors, the the Argentine intelligence service is always this kind of quasi independent body. It's it's right. never completely beholden to whoever is occupying the the Casa Rosada there in in Buenos Aires. Mm. So you have this this kind of insulation uh, 
between Perón and the very Nazis he's sponsoring. And it's interesting that during Perón's first dictatorship, that the, the director of Argentine Central Intelligence is a fellow by the name of Rodolfo Freude. Mm. <laughs> okay. So there was another, another Argentine yeah. German. Mm. Uh, that has, you know, just very, very good connections, not only with, with, uh, other Central and South American intelligence services, but he's also got these connections to Germany mm. through his family. Mm. And these connections, I have to tell you, they're very, very deep. They're so deep, they go all the way to Walter Schellenberg, you know, and the Sicherheitdienst. So you've, you've got, You've got a real piece of work in, in the guy that's running Perón's intelligence here. Mm -hmm. But you said, uh, no, you wrote in, uh, actually you reproduced in, in one of your books a uh, document where Perón and Borman signed uh, a bank yeah. draft or something. What was that about? That's, well, by the way, an indication that Borman was still alive, isn't it? Oh, it's worse <laughs> than that. It's worse than that. It's worse than oh, that. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's much worse. <laughs> Give it that. to us. <laughs> yeah, well, let's use this as the closeout for the day because this yeah. one's a whopper. Okay. Um, Bormann, in, in the researches of, of um, Paul Manning, let me explain to your European audience who Paul Manning was. Mm. Uh, before Walter Cronkite in this country, there was a CBS broadcast journalist by the name of Ed Murrow. He was a famous broadcaster during World War II, in fact. He covered the, the Blitz in London, you know, making these radio broadcasts live to American audiences back in, in the United States. Mm. So he became, you know, the first real public face of, of American television after the war. And Paul Manning was one of his very close associates at CBS News. Mm. And Paul Manning, in turn, was a, a close friend with Ladislas Fadergo, whom we've already talked about, that, that wrote the book uh, Aftermath, Martin Borman and the Fourth Reich. Right. And, you know, the, the American press just, you know, I was, again, I was in high school at the time that that, that book came out, and it the American press and, and book reviewers just hammered on Ladislas Farago for that book. Mm. You know, I, you know, we can't have Martin Borman alive and well and not in, in, in Argentina running around Latin America, coordinating all these projects and running all this money. And Paul Manning was so incensed at the way that, that his friend had been treated. He wrote his own book called Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile. Yeah, okay? I've seen that book. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a doozy. And before he published the book, he gave the manuscript to Alan Dulles to oh. look over and, you know, comment on. And when the book was finally published... Manning put in the foreword that Alan Dulles had reviewed the manuscript and said, you're on the right track. <laughs> okay. Wow. So there's the imprimatur over the whole book. Now, what does the book say? The most, you know, I, I got to tell you, Al, when I read this first time, I, I was just kind of sitting at my desk 
and you know I, I don't live with anybody and i you know i said out loud to the to the empty room you're kidding <laughs> you got to be kidding me paul manning had discovered that in the early 1960s martin borman wrote a check for a couple of million dollars <laughs> on an account in Chase Manhattan Bank, and uh, I think it was National Hanover Bank or something, another bank in the United States, Mm. over his own signature. In other words, he signed it, Martin Bormann. (laughs) Okay, with with Martin Bormann's signature. No pseudonym needed here. No no pseudonym needed here, folks. The check... The check was cleared yeah. by these banks through Deutsche Bank in Buenos Aires. <laughs> so, you know, right there, mm. you, you have somebody has a big account with Chase Manhattan. <coughs> to Obviously, in the millions of dollars and has a checking account <laughs> with Mr. Rockefeller's bank. Mm. And can go around Latin America cashing checks for a cool couple million. That's how relaxed he was. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and yeah, that's how relaxed he was. And it's all cleared by Deutsche Bank. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wasn't there a co-signature from Peron? No, the the document that document that you're referring to is a different document. Oh. That was put together by uh, the the um, Secret Service, the U.S. Treasury. Mm that listed the liquid assets that uh, Bormann and Perón controlled in Argentina in 1945 (coughs) through Evita Evita Perón's foundation. And if you look at that document, the, the sum of money, if I remember correctly, the sum of money is $800 million. Dollars, wow. and that's probably peanuts for Bowman. And that's that's in 1945 dollars, incidentally. Wow. That's how much. <laughs> but this was 1945 after the war, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, so from the 1945 to 1960, he's still walking around signing his name. It, yeah. it, it's just <laughs> as dangerous in 1945 because that's when they really had incentive to take. Oh, him. sure. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Listen, we're at overtime here. Just one quick question at the end here, because this needs to be addressed. You don't have to elaborate. But where in South America, uh, you know, all these Nazi colonies, uh, we know about many of them. We have the colonial Dignidad. We have uh, Mm -hmm. Bariloche, etc. But which area, as you know it, in South America would be remote and big enough for the Nazis to have uh, the main headquarters uh, for probably the Bell and, and what else, uh, the Kammerstab? My guess is that you are looking at with places like Colonia Dignidad and, and San Carlos de Bariloche, uh, Tierra del Fuego, all of these places, that the real secretive installations are going to be located in the in the vast tunnel systems in the Andes Mountains. Mm. Uh, you know, that tunnel system, some people speculate, runs all the way from Peru down, you know, all the way to, to the southern tip of Chile. Yeah. Um, 
and there are indicators if you look at if you look at the goings on in Peru of of the of the Nazis in Peru. Mm. Uh, our good friend Friedrich von Schwent mm. ends up in, in Peru, and of course, this is the guy that ran Operation Bernard, the big yeah. counterfeiting operation. So, in other words, you know, there's follow another the money, huh? follow the money, exactly. <laughs> uh, there's another little clue right there. You, mm. you know, you you take the all this money that they're laundering and run it through the tunnel system down the spine of the continent, and you know, there's your Black Projects funding right there. Yeah, the German version. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's so brilliant. We're going to have Richard Soders on, I hope. Uh, Dolan promised to, to put us in contact because he has made a case for all these underground uh, facilities. Sure. So, uh, so, yeah, that's so brilliant. If they have huge networks that can connect the different colonials, then uh, that's it. And it's yep. uh, literally underground. <laughs> yep. yep. This has been... You know, it's such an interesting uh, episode of the whole affair. I guess we can next time move uh, move a little quicker on then up the timeline. All right. So thanks a lot, uh, Joseph, for coming yep. on and enlightening us. It's been a blast. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for having me back on now. Yeah. Anytime. Okay. All right. And that's our show for today. We hope you enjoyed it. The books we covered in the course of this conversation was Reich of the Black Sun, Nazi Secret Weapons and the Cold War Allied Legion, Nazi International, the Nazis' post-war plan to control finance, conflict, physics and space, Secrets of the Unified Field, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Nazi Bell and the Discarded Theory. Roswell and the Reich, the Nazi connection, and the Philosopher's Stone, alchemy and the secret research for exotic matter. Do join us again when the Forum Professor returns to educate us further on this and other matters. Now, in every program, we encourage you to donate. We've got some questions regarding this, and I'd like everyone to hear the answer. No, you do not need a PayPal account in order to donate, even if we use their button. In fact, any credit card works, just as if you're buying something online. As for the amount, yes, we're asking for $1 under the principle that if each person donate $1 for every program they enjoy, we would get enough fun to keep the forum going. Of course, in actuality, only a few people care to chip in, and usually with more than $1. Principally, that means they're covering for others. Be that as it may, we naturally accept any amount, big or small. The important thing is that we're all sharing guests of their time and knowledge, the team with production work, and the listeners with crowdfunding, so to speak. The end result is that we accomplish another episode of the forum and cheers for that. Until next time, I remain your sincere host Al, together with the rest of the team, be seeing you. Number one.